Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, uh, and we felt this early, way back last November, December, but especially now, because suddenly Baltimore's in the news. And, and they all... They, we got 1,400 people tonight who know that Baltimore's in the news. And so there are lines that land, you know, more so than maybe six months ago. Maybe. This, To Kill a Mockingbird, the play, uh, you feel it. And we're, we're, it's a mixed audience, but there's a lot of white people there. A lot of white liberal America, a lot of white America sitting out there. And this play is like a right hook to their chin. You watch the movie, you read the book, you feel the play. When Tom Robinson gets sent to jail, he's 100% innocent, and the only reason he's going to jail is because he's black. You see Tom Robinson chained up and walking across the stage on his way to the electric chair, and it's a long cross. You feel that, and America needs to feel that stuff. America needs to do better than... Look at that picture of that father and that daughter in the river. And you tell, you tell me that you're going to go into the voting booth and you're going to go, they shouldn't have crossed the river. Now, there are people out there that believe that. Go ahead. Vote for it. Do it. But I'm, I, and, I, and I can't wait for, we've what, this is in the second debate out of 20? Jesus, you know, um, um, I, uh, whittle it down, but like, we need somebody that can take this guy on. Well, can you, punch him in the face. It- and welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast. It's the 2nd of August, year of our Lord, 2019, and that's just another one of those sound bites that somehow it's okay on the left to say you want to punch people in the face, but if you put a sight picture... On a district, you've incited violence. We have oh, some few violent stories. We're going to have some odds and ends up front and a fire for effect, which we haven't done for a while. More Baltimore, some odds and ends, as I said. Then we're going to go into uh, Baltimore's turn into Sharpton, who's now the sole arbiter of goodness in America, at least by the sound bites. And then a CNN debate, news and social media nuggets. So, let's... Just get into it and fire for effect. Right here in Virginia, your predecessors.
Thank you very much. Thank you. And Kira, the president speaking today at Jamestown, Virginia, commemorating 400 years of representative government here. But a number of lawmakers decided to skip the speech. That's right, David. Virginia's Legislative Black Caucus boycotted Trump's speech today and in a statement saying it is impossible to ignore the emblem of hate and disdain that the president represents. Now, there was also one state lawmaker, David of Color, who did show up and he took the opportunity to protest, shouting, Mr. President, you cannot send us back. Virginia is our home. We remember... Every sacred soul. The president's tone changed at a ceremony here in Jamestown, marking 400 years since the first legislative assembly in America and the arrival of the first enslaved Africans. African Americans have built, strengthened, inspired, uplifted, protected, defended, and sustained our nation. His speech interrupted by a protester. Ibrahim Samira is a Democratic delegate to the state's legislature. Rhetoric isn't just words, it turns into policies with this president. In Richmond, the state's legislative black caucus boycotted the president's speech. We must never allow anyone to dismantle and to erode democracy. Yeah, that, that we rewind tapes and go back in time <clears throat> when a guy from the Daily Caller interrupted Obama. Do you remember what happened? Yeah, he's lauded now. That was that was media sound bites. But he's from Virginia. Andrew Clark. Can't make this up. The lawmaker heckled Trump today and accused him of bigotry as a history of his own with anti-Semitic bigotry that he's apologized for. Samira, Palestinian-American, has his own history of controversial comments, specifically related to Israel. The Washington Post of February reported on a series of Samara social media posts from 2014 that have since been deleted. In another post of 2014, after former Israel Prime Minister Ariel Sharon died, Samira wrote, Ariel Sharon, burn, burn a million times for every innocent soul you kill. Hell is excited to have you. Samira also reportedly posted comments about Israel teenagers share an article about how Israel uses social media and dating apps to legitimize murder. Most Israeli teenagers do not only want to cover up the murders in their name, but they have young urges that need to be released somehow. Tinder perfect for that. Samira, who was a former volunteer for Talib, is linked to many multiple anti-Semitic organizations. That's who that guy was. But more importantly, he's from Virginia, where the governor who had KKK photos never had to stand down. The assistant governor who sexually harassed a woman never had to stand down. The attorney general had KKK photos. He didn't have to step down. Nobody has to step down because they're Democrats. And now he's lauded for interrupting the president. It just seems like it makes sense in 2019. I mean, we research individual people. If somehow I went viral, I would be doxxed and researched. My family would be brought out in the street and shot. Because <laughs> I'm not a Democrat. But if you're a Democrat, you could be a douche nozzle. Then we have a double doubt. I, you know, I don't know if I should do this. Sometimes if you play too much Dowd, Maureen, and Matt, it could lend and, you know, fuck up the space-time continuum. Doc Brown talked about this 
and Back to the Future. But I'm going to do it. One's Marine down talking with somebody for the New York Times, bashing Catholic connection to SCOTUS. Yeah, we could do that. Can't do it for Islam, though. And then Matt Dowd losing his fucking mind, just losing his mind over Mueller. Thing. I was incredibly disappointed in the coverage of it, actually. I thought there were substantive things that Robert Mueller testified to that were very important. But much of the coverage on it was all about optics or entertainment value. And one thing I've learned in life is many times things are entertaining, but they're not important. And many times things are important, but they're not entertaining. And to me, if any viewer out there wants to know exactly what's going on and what happened and what the president did or did not do, just read the report. I know it's hard. It's 400 plus pages. Read the report because there are serious allegations and problematic things in that report for the president of the United States. I give back my time to Matthew Dow to go another two minutes on yeah. that. <laughs> I figured we couldn't go without having Matt Dowd, who numerous times said smoking guns and gun smoking. And if you didn't think the president was Russian asset, you're a douche nozzle and Christian suck and all the other things because he's an independent. Yeah, sure. Fox did an interview, reveals media exaggerated about Trump bullying Mega Rapahoe. I was really surprised Fox did it, but they pretty much showed that, you know, he just rebutted what she was saying. But the best thing that came out this week, since for those that knew the show, Fire for a Fact is going over stuff we already covered. And then we go into new subjects. U.S. Soccer releases fact sheet showing women's team actually lost millions yet was paid more than men's team. President U.S. Soccer Federation released a fact sheet Monday night alleging that the contrary to claims made as part of a lawsuit, the U.S. Women's National Team actually lost the Federation millions of dollars. Despite this, the president claimed women's soccer players still out-earn their male counterparts. Every four years when the Women's Soccer World Cup is news, we are told that women's team is paid less than the men's team. The claim is used as a rallying cry in the demand for equal pay, even though athletes and other entertainers have vastly different pay structures than average Americans. Still, we are told that America's team is discriminated against because other gender because they are paid less than men. Or this year, the women's team filed a lawsuit against USSF, allegedly paying for pay discrimination. In June, the women's team released information alleging they brought in more revenue for USSF than the men's team. The difference was slight, 50.8 and 49.9. But it was enough to cast doubt on those saying women's team doesn't bring as much revenue as the men's. Now, Carlos Cordera is pushing back. He wrote an open letter explaining that he directed U.S. soccer staff to conduct an extensive analysis of the past 10 years of U.S. soccer. He said the analysis was reviewed by an independent accounting firm. The analysis showed that women's team was paid more than the men's team. The fact sheet included bulleted information about the different pay structures for the men's and women's team. USSF claimed that it paid women 34.1 in salaries and bonuses, and paid the men 26.4, not counting the significant additional value of various benefits that our women's players receive, but which our men do not. For example, the women's team has a guaranteed salary thanks to the collective borrowing agreement. They receive a base salary of $100,000 each year, an additional salary of 67.5 to 72.5 for playing in the National Women's Soccer League male uh, playing the league, sorry. Male soccer players do not have such agreement. That agreement means women's soccer players earn a guaranteed salary of 167.5 to 172.5. On top of that, they're paid bonuses. 
The med team only earns bonuses. Yes, those bonuses can be larger, but that's because they don't have the guaranteed base salary. The women's team, according to USSF, also receives benefits including 401k plan, health insurance, as well as maternity leave and injury protection. The men's team does not receive any benefits. Finally, USSF pointed out that the hypothetical hypothetical per-game comparison making the media rounds isn't even plausible. Neither the men nor the women's team have ever played 20 friendly matches in a year, yet that is what the hypothetical scenario is based on. That said, if the men and women ever did play in and win 20 friendlies in a year and were paid the average bonus amount, women's player would earn more than men's player. The women's player would earn at least 307500 that's adding up bonuses, all that other shit. And the men's player would learn, earn 263,333. USSF claimed a shocking claim included in the USSF fact sheet are statistics showing the women's team has actually lost USSF money from 2009 to 2019, a time frame that includes two women's World Cup championships. The women's national team has earned a gross revenue of 101.3 million over 238 games for an average of 425,446 per game. And the men's national team has earned a gross revenue of 185.7 million over 191 games for an average of 972,147 per game. More specifically, WNT games have generated a net profit ticket revenue minus event expenses in only two years, 2016 and 17. Across the entire 11-year period, Women's National Game generated a net loss of $27.5 million. Nevertheless, U.S. soccer does not view the, these as losses, but rather an important investment in our women's national team. A spokesman from the women's team called the fact sheet a ruse and a sad attempt, and the media won't put it out. I got this on the Daily Wire. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. It's just like the 77 cents, 76 cents, whatever the fuck they're, they're throwing out there now. It's bullshit. It's all bullshit. The world's set up in base salaries. Everybody makes the fucking same. The only place that people can get fucked is in corporate America. If you're up in the top 500, you know, in a corporate 500 where you have high, high offices. And that's in negotiations. It's just like football, basketball, baseball. It's what you negotiate. So if you don't negotiate good, well, that's your fucking problem. Next story, Apple News bans LifeSite News for intolerance. LifeSite News just talks about abortion. Hmm. Then we got some Baltimore. Now, this will never make your airwaves. How do I know that? Well, PBS film series underlined Baltimore's rat problem, but by the end of it, it didn't have anything to do with rats. It had to do with racism. The entire series was racism, 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 racism. So, why didn't this ever make the air? About a year ago, city leaders identified some of the city's most violent neighborhoods. What the hell? We should just take all this down. To target... Ooh, you can smell the rats. ...under Baltimore's Violence Reduction Initiative. Ooh, Jesus. Just last week, we went with Mayor Pugh as she toured an East Baltimore neighborhood. This is a new one. I've been out here 54 years. This is a new one. Baltimore's Violence Reduction Initiative is about taking steps to rid communities of the cornerstones that contribute to crime. Oh, my God. You can smell the dead animals. Blocks of dilapidated buildings help to hide the addiction that's crippled this community. 
community. That's the mayor. That's the mayor. You can smell the rat shit, and we need to tear this shit down. The mayor. That didn't make PBS. Did make CNN, who still is doing this. He's something that he did, you know, to the four, you know, female congressmen, as congresswomen, and it's something he's now doing to Elijah Cummings, um, and it's it's not even subtle. Uh, and so I think it's really, um, it's surprising, I guess, that they feel comfortable uh, just admitting that they believe that their voters are racists. Joe, let's, with you, take it one step further. You actually, uh, and I'm going to read your tweet, anyone who supports a racist or a racist strategy is a racist themselves. 2020 is a moment uh, of reckoning for America. Vote for Donald Trump and you are a racist. Don't hide it like a coward. Wear that racist badge proudly and see how it feels. I'm going to read the sentence again. Vote for Donald Trump and you're a racist. Americans who, who, who vote for the president because, let's say, they are firmly pro-life. They are racist because they believe he's right on that issue and whomever the, the eventual Democratic nominee is, is pro-choice. That pro-life voter is a racist because they vote for Donald Trump? I, I, I think so. I think racism only exists because it's supported. Uh, if people didn't support racism, you wouldn't have you you wouldn't have racists. Uh, and I think this election is different than 2016. We got lots of hints from Donald Trump in 2016 that he was a bigot. He attacked the Mexican judge, uh, for example, saying that he couldn't uh, be uh, loyal to America because he had Mexican heritage, even though he was born, I think, in Indiana. Um, but this time, um, as Kirsten was saying. They're making this an explicit strategy. They're saying, and it's an illogical extension of his immigration uh, strategy. They're saying they want to divide America into two groups, whites and non-whites. Uh, and that is a racist strategy. So my point is, when you go into the polls and if you say you support Donald Trump, then you're supporting his racism. And that's the foundation of, uh, of being a racist. Everyone, let me come to you, Kirsten, every one of the people... Every person in America who votes for Donald Trump in 2020 is a racist. That's what we're hearing from Joe. Do you agree with that? I think that I think that if you vote for somebody who is is behaving in such explicitly racist manner, and again, it, and we're being told this is part of a strategy. This is not. This is his belief that this will work with his voters. So he's actually the one who's saying that they're racist. So let's let's just be clear about that. Um, I, I think that if you go ahead and you, and you vote for a person who does the things he does, at a bare minimum, it's not a deal breaker for you. And I think that somebody that uh, is doing that needs to take a step back and look at themselves and say, why is this not a deal breaker for me? And why am I okay with the fact that the president and the people around him seem to think that I'm a racist? Baking cookies doesn't sell houses. Me, I use Spectrum. Get Spectrum Internet, delivering more speed, more consistently for better surfing, streaming, and gaming. Spectrum TV with more free HD and more free on demand. Get Spectrum TV and Internet from $44.99 a month each. So let's close with what the Baltimore Sun said about this today. The Baltimore Sun's editorial is one for the history books. We would tell the most dishonest man to ever occupy the Oval Office, that mocker of war heroes, the gleeful grabber of women's private parts, the serial bankrupter of businesses, the useful idiot of Vladimir Putin, and the guy who insisted there are good people among murderous neo-Nazis. 
that he's still not fooling most Americans into believing he's even slightly competent in his current job. Better to have some vermin living in your neighborhood than to be one. The Baltimore Sun's editorial this morning. It's gone viral online. And the Baltimore Sun's editorial is scathing. Baltimore's local newspaper in a scathing editorial blasting the president, writing, quote, better to have some vermin living in your neighborhood than to be one. In a scathing editorial, the Baltimore Sun said better to have a few rats than to be one. The Baltimore Sun publishing this scathing editorial. The headline, better to have a few rats than to be one. It's almost that like the president refused to accept that he's the president of every state, every city in the United States, including Baltimore. Yeah. <clears throat> it's all horse shit. It brings me to another great thing that kind of ties into it. Robotic hacks. CNNers sound awfully similar bashing Trump's politics of hate on Baltimore. CNN has gone after Sinclair Broadcasting Group for having different run segments. And we cover that on the show where they push out conservative ideas and nobody likes it. As part of CNN's recent existence has been to demean, <coughs> smear, and send the unemployment lines, those working for Fox News. But what about CNN's penchant for identical segments with little independence from its host? Well, an example popped up Monday with the president criticizing Baltimore for its rampant crime. Decrepit conditions and Congressman Elijah Cummings, who gerrymandered districts including much of the city. Instead of acknowledging that CNN journalists called Trump comments full of hate and racist, <clears throat> often alongside the Chiron politics of hate, between 4 a.m. and 5 p.m. Eastern, to make Granter's worth the wink and a nudge, CNN used four shows to highlight Jared Kushner's company owning buildings in Baltimore so they can insinuate that some, or, not even, or even a lot of, Baltimore's problems can be blamed on the Kushners. The sheet music must have been distur- distur- distributed overnight as early start co-host Dave Briggs bashed Trump on his former employer, then it goes into the next show, and the next show, I'm not going to read it all. It's Allison Camerato making more racial division comments about Baltimore Cummings, but she later rephrased his words that many Democrats and others saying that they are racist. Oh, so by that you mean the news media. How convenient. Co-host John Berman also had a similar thought, reporting this morning the country's faced with the question of how to respond when a president says racist things, which he later added as being not just about Baltimore, Stoking racial division. And this article is amazing. As you go through each show, it's all the same shit over and over and over. Same words, same phrases, same Kushner, same wall, Charlottesville. Every fucking show is identical. Now, I want you, if you ever do, and I used to, so I guess I'm talking out my ass. I don't know if it's the same now. If you go from, who the fuck's the first person? Uh, Tucker Carlson. And you go to Hannity in the evening. Those three shows cover some same subjects, but they have different subjects. You go to CNN, it is the same shit repeated. And it's all the same slant. Anti-Republican, anti-Trump, anti-Christian, pro-gay, pro-Islam, pro-this. So, in the interlude between Cummings and Sharpton, that's all they did. But then when Sharpton, Sharpton, 
opened his yappas. They went in this direction. Little did I know that Mr. Trump was going to, on the eve of this, attack the congressman from this city. And not only the congressman, but the people of this city in the most bigoted and racist way. He attacks everybody. I know Donald Trump. He's not mature enough to take criticism. He can't help it. He's like a child. Somebody says something, he reacts. He's thin-skinned and not really matured that well. But he has a particular venom for blacks and people of color. He doesn't refer to any of his other opponents or critics as infested. He does not attack their districts. He attacks Nancy Pelosi. He attacks Chuck Schumer. He attacks other whites, but he never said that their districts or their states are places that no human being wants to live. The fact of the matter is, Elijah Cummins' district is the most well-educated and middle-class aspiring district of blacks in this country. So I think it is very much, Whoopi, like you're saying, a distraction because he doesn't want Congressman Cummings to do his job of oversight. He wants uh, Elijah Cummings to do something else. And I took specific umbrage to Baltimore, uh, his, his aspersion on Baltimore, because guess what? I lived in Baltimore. I met my husband in Baltimore. My son was born in Baltimore. I worked in Baltimore. I met some of the finest people on the face of the earth in Baltimore. And while there are challenges, there are challenges in Baltimore, but Johns Hopkins University is in Baltimore, one of the finest medical institutions in the world, not just this country, but the world. And the suggestion that somehow it is just run into the ground. I mean, when you think about poverty, Nine out of the ten poorest states in the country are red states. They, are, they have Republican governors. Why doesn't he talk about the poverty there? Why is he talking about the well, poverty in Baltimore? How about that? We are a nation of lots of different kinds of folks. And calling folks racist when you have no idea what it actually means is ridiculous. Oh, but, you mean because he calls Elijah Cummings a racist? Yeah. That that's, that makes no sense. That, what, that's typical, didn't I just say that? Yeah, well, I'm trying to clarify. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it clear to the audience who you're oh, talking about. Yeah, I, no, I thought that... I, yeah. Well, because, okay. because Elijah... Cummings, is, is, yes. Is the, is the black man, he's calling the black man the racist. I mean, I don't think people understand that particularly. It's outrageous and stupid. Yes. To call a black person a racist. That's okay. All. Hallie, the president's also going after longtime civil rights advocate Reverend Al Sharpton this morning. Do we know why? We do. Lester Sharpton set to speak with members of the media later today in Baltimore, along with former Republican National Committee Chair Michael Steele. That has seemed to irritate the president, who this morning says Sharpton is simply showing up to complain and accusing him of hating white people and police officers. Sharpton has responded already, pointing out in 2006 the president said he respected Sharpton's work. Much more to come on this story, Lester. All right, Hallie, thank you. Now, another target of the president's attacks, the Reverend Al Sharpton, is firing back, accusing the president of trying to sell racist behavior. The president has plenty of critics after his attacks on yet another African-American lawmaker, Elijah Cummings, whose district includes part of Baltimore, and now African-American civil rights activist and MSNBC host Al Sharpton, calling him a con man after Sharpton visited the city to stand up for its people. The president seems unwilling to let his feud with Congressman Cummings fizzle. And now President Trump has another target in his crosshairs, the Reverend Al Sharpton. 
The president lashed out, calling the civil rights activist a con man and a troublemaker who hates whites and cops. Sharpton fired back. I'm going to keep making trouble for bigots. On Monday, President Trump called the Reverend Al Sharpton a con man who, quote, hates whites and cops. If he really thought I was a con man, he'd be nominating me for his cabinet. (laughs) Sharpton criticized the president for his attacks on Cummings and his district, which includes Baltimore. But he has a particular venom for blacks and people of color. Here's about, though, is attacking black men. He loves attacking yep. black men. He loves attacking black women. Uh, he, he's, he's doing, and, and the pace, as I said last hour, is quickening. And now he's attacking our good friend, Al Sharpton. Reverend Al is on the phone right now. So, Rev, you're in the Elijah Cummings Hall of Fame, and I would call it a Hall of Fame uh, because uh, such a good man. Uh, but uh, so Donald Trump tweeting today said that, uh, you and he always got along well and that you loved Trump, but he said that uh, you hate whites and hate cops, which is very interesting, Al, because <clears throat> I think you probably know and most people that know me know I'm about as white as they come and you and I are really good friends. What, what do you think about Donald Trump now reaching out after attacking Elijah Cummings all weekend, now deciding to start attacking you? Well, I think this is Trump getting ready for re-election, so he's going to attack the most visible black that uh, comes across his desk that he thinks can set a tone. I'm not going to bite the bait. The fact of the matter is I've released on Instagram, my Instagram, pictures of Donald Trump coming to National Action Network conventions, uh, one where he was explaining to James Brown and, and uh, Reverend Jackson how, despite the fact that I marched on him about Central Park and marched on him the issues, he comes to my convention because he respects my work. Now, all of a sudden, I'm all these names. Fine. The fact of the matter is, if he came to my convention, the National <clears throat> Action Network, I couldn't have conned him to come. He came because he was trying to have it both ways, which he's trying to do now. We need to stand up and deal with the fact that this president's policies hurt people all over this country. And despite people like Elijah Cummings have delivered for their district and could deliver more if they were empowered. And we we need not get in the sideshow of a man that one minute calls your name, next minute stands up smiling with you at your convention. He will do anything, including to his own supporters, if it's to his advantage. I'm not going to fall prey to so when they weren't online saying Sharpton was the greatest thing ever and that Trump was the devil and how dare he criticize this civil rights icon, they were online. Keith Boykin, Al Sharpton, Elijah Cummings, Ilian Omar, Ma- Maxine Waters, John Lewis, Obama, Kenyan black countries, shithole black athletes, son of a bitch black tenants, unwelcome black workers, lazy Central Park Five, guilty Nazis, very fine people. Vince Cooligan, you miss Sanders, Warren, Amash, De Niro, Biden. It's what Trump does. It's not right, but that's what he does. But they were online, that's a CNN guy, and numerous CNN people and others were trying to push that, oh, it's only black people. Molly Jong Fast, the piece of shit. President of the United States just tweeted the civil rights leader hates whites and cops. Either he's trying to distract for something, or he's insane racist for both. Ariel Davidson. So we're just going to pretend the Crown House riot didn't happen. 
I forgot which Jew-hating event the Democrats were whitewashing this week. Same people that lectured about Charlottesville now rushing to defend, of all people, Al Sharpton. They don't care. And they're right. All right. Overnight, the same day this was going down, authorities investigate 11 fires in Baltimore. Then, live on air, Fox Baltimore, a rat runs through Fox 45 Baltimore reporter live shot during a story about Trump's tweet about Baltimore being rat infested. So when people started showing, oh gee, that's kind of a sign, Newsweek, hold my beer. Rat runs through Baltimore reporter's live broadcast, Trump supporters tout as proof, cities infested. Fested. Obviously, Trump supporters are seizing on this rat to make Baltimore look bad. Ann Coulter, Todd Starnes, and several state-level Republican Party lawmakers joined thousands of right-leaning social media users gleefully sharing the video. WCBM AM talk radio host Bruce Elliott declared on Starnes' radio show that the unplanned is the truth as Trump was correct in identifying the rat city's rat and crime problem, with many critics said were racist comments. During a later broadcast Monday, a Fox 45 Baltimore anchor described the rat fleeting appearance as proof of Trump's complaint about parts of the city. Segment also noted Vermont Independent Bernie Sanders referring to parts of the city as uninhabitable. Blah, 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 blah. Katie Pavlich, this headline is so obnoxious. The rat proved it is infested. It's in broad daylight. Broad daylight. And then, Elijah Cummings home broken into. Police investigating. Steve Lochner. Worth noting that the break-in of Elijah Cummings' home on Saturday morning occurred seven several hours before President Trump's tweet criticizing Cummings. But Ben Piven and other libtards, Mr. President, try staying one night where Congressman Cummings lives in Charm City, and you may not last in the morning. The Honorable Representative of Maryland 7th has served Baltimore pride and integrity. He is right to demand justice at the border and his House committee. It's the same defense the same guy brought out a week ago. He copied his tweet. Others on the far left said, see, this is proof Trump's fucking rhetoric causes crime. And then other smartasses like me, which is what I tweeted, yeah, Trump got in a time machine with Doc Brown, went forward in time, or went backwards in time and made sure somebody broke into the fucking house. I fucked that up. I mean, what the fuck, dude? This is their shtick. Rob Reiner this week. This is a statement. President of the United States is a racist. He made it abundantly clear his re-election is based on white nationalism. If you support him, there could be no distinction between you being a racist and a racist enabler. Yeah. That's what they ran with. All week. You see I'm abbreviating because I really am just getting so sick of this shit. While their side this week, we have another three idiotos soundbite. This tweet, literally, Andrew Suburbian, or Surabian, I don't know how to say his name. Wow, it appears Omar is celebrating calling for violence against Rand Paul. I hope every Democrat... And Republican Congress, as well as members of the media, have the courage to call this out. Tom Arnold, imagine being Rand Paul's next-door neighbor and having to deal with Rand Paul lying cowardly, circly, whining bullcrap about the long clippings. No wonder he ripped his toupee off. 
Cheery tweeted it. But oh, it's worse. It's worse. It's just worse. She said that Trump is racist and white men are the terrorists in our country. Tlaib had a complete fucking meltdown and started crying during a hearing on prescription drugs. And AOC said, oh yeah, by agreeing with somebody on Al Jazeera, Israel, the state of, is a criminal state. I have a vision correction number, but I'm more than a number. When I'm not teaching, I'm taking steep grades and tight corners. My Essilor lenses offer more than vision correction with three innovative technologies for my ultimate in vision, clarity, and protection together in a single lens. The Essilor Ultimate Lens Package. So I can do more of what I love. Buy new transitions with select Essilor lenses. Choose a second pair of qualifying clear lenses free with purchase of frames. See more. Do more. Essilor. This committee hits home so, so much. I just want to thank all of you so much for speaking up because, I mean, I know I can speak to some of us here. There's a lack of urgency, right? There's a lack of urgency. One of the things that I, I, this broken system and the frustration I have, and I had all these questions. I wanted to pull out these human stories, but I think you all have put a human face to something for years, I feel like, hasn't truly been translated into the human impact until it got so broken down, so to the point where you have people rationing, that you have people actually dying right before your eyes because we've allowed corporate greed, we've allowed corporate greed to come before, before the people. Omar is a key member of the squad speaking about the president a moment ago. At a conference organized by the Muslim Collective for Equitable Democracy, we have the clip, and here it is. Even when we're talking about the president, people will say, you know, it, his remarks are racist and will forget the inherent racism that has always been part of him and how much he always takes an opportunity to others to vilify them. Mark Merritt has been listening as well. He's live in Washington. Let's begin with you, Mark. Brand new hour. Good morning. And, and good morning to you, Bill. Representative Omar on the stage here where we are at the Muslim Caucus of America event. It's a meeting where she's been able to speak for the last 20 minutes or so. She's there on a panel discussion. And as you just played in that clip right there, she was speaking about her thoughts on this latest back and forth between her and President Trump. She is still on stage at this moment. When she addressed the comments, when she took the stage, she talked about President Trump and she believes his past views uh, that believed, in her opinion, that he is a racist. She talked about his past stance on the Central Park Five. That was the case from the late 1980s, early 90s, about the five men that were incarcerated and then uh, released several years later. The uh, representative talking about that she feels that this is a chance for not only the Muslim American community, but for minority communities all across the country to really uh, stand up and organize going into the 2019 and 2020 elections. She's not the only uh, member that's been on stage. We've heard from a number of people speaking out. But I also want to show you a tweet that involved the Congresswoman this morning, this one coming from President Trump. We can read it if we can. And he goes, in 2016, I almost won Minnesota. In 2020, because of America hating anti-Semite Representative Omar and the fact that Minnesota is having its best economic year ever, I will win the state. 
Uh, he also goes on to talk about uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and the three others that have been known as the squad, this uh, latest back and forth that has engulfed both the White House and these members of Congress ever since the president's rally in North Carolina last week. We're hoping to get a chance to hear from the representative one-on-one, -on -one, a chance to get asked questions. She's speaking uh, pretty much just about 50 feet or so from where we are. Once she gets off the stage, Bill, we're going to see if we can talk to her to address not only this latest tweet from the president, but any other comments she may have as this week uh, Congress comes back. To okay, Mark, it Bill. is breaking news. I'll get back to you in a moment. Mark Meredith, thank you in Washington on that. Did the media go to the airwaves on that one? Yeah, no. They, they didn't cover any of those statements. They didn't even pay attention to it. Whereas, you know, Trump tweet, oh, yeah, we're, we're all in. And then, while all this is going on, Sharpton's a great person. He's a civil rights icon. How dare he disparage him? He's a fucking racist. We had two attacks. The first one, Ted Cruz, a, rep a senator in our country. And this is LAX. We do with the media reports about how Maxine Waters, people all over the media have told people to do this very act towards Republicans. They should not be able to live in public. They should not have a social life. They should stay in their homes because they're evil. And then a local, a local only, covered another New York attack on a person of color wearing a Make America Great hat. hat. They flipped my hat first and then they bashed me. So. You're watching cell phone video recorded just minutes after the attack of this New York City art gallery owner by more than a dozen teens. It left him covered in bruises. You see right there, blood vessels broken in his eye. News Force Radio Adam, live near the scene of the beating and raid. This says, he says this happened because of what he was wearing. That's right, Stacey. He says it happened because he was wearing a Make America Great Again hat. He says he was walking down Canal towards West Broadway when a group of 15 to 20 people ambushed him, knocked his, his head into a pole. Now police are investigating. Making America great again. The day started with a trip to Trump Tower for Jahangir Tehran. He Facebook lived the occasion. How much is the red hats? What do you guys think? This one? But the day of excitement took a turn, ending in violence. It all happened real quick. It was maybe 15 seconds. So there's not much that, you know, I just, I just know that I was, I was getting hit. Tuesday evening on his way to a meeting in lower Manhattan, Tehran was on Canal Street where police say he was ambushed, punched in the head. Tehran says it was more than a dozen young people. The one girl noticed I was wearing a the hat, so she flipped it. It, it flipped onto the street. And uh, as it flipped onto the street, I went to grab it. And then they started pounding me. I fought them off. 
the one kid grabbed my head and hit it against the pole. Today at an art gallery he owns in Midtown, Tehran discussed the attack. He says he was walking under the scaffolding by the Canal Street stop near West Broadway. He says, he says the attack was politically charged. They would scream out anti-Trump, you know, Trump, this, you know, whatever, what you wearing, a hat, blah, blah, blah. He also shared a video he filmed right after the attack. I got beat up. So I'm wearing this hat. They flipped my hat first and then they Police are now looking for witnesses, video, and the suspects. The victim, undeterred from sharing his message, wearing his hat, and suffering a fracture to his eye, wanting to see justice. To get assaulted, wearing a hat, wearing uh, a Make America Great hat, it's, it's, it's uh, sad. As part of this investigation, police have been talking to gallery owners all along here on Canal, trying to figure out more about this case. So if you know anything about the attack, give the NYPD a call. We're live in Lower Manhattan this evening. I'm Ray Vieta, News 4 New York. Thank you for watching this video from NBC4 New York. You can subscribe by tapping the button below me. And on the left, you can see our latest updates, investigations, and digital exclusives. We'll see you next time. Nope, that didn't make the airwaves either. Early Monday evening, Trump supporter and art gallery owner Jahanga Tehran was walking down a street in Manhattan, New York, wearing a Make America Great a hat again. Make America Great Ahead. Make American Great Again hat. Let's try that. Yeah. He had purchased at Trump Tower when he was allegedly assaulted in broad daylight by a group of teens. News of the attack only grabbed national attention on Thursday instead of... News of the attack only grabbed national attention on Thursday. Instead of reporting on the possible politically motivated attack in their own backyards, the flagship evening newscasts of ABC, CBS, and NBC were too busy suggesting Trump supporters at a rally in Cincinnati, Ohio that night were going to chant racist slogans. While the networks were ignoring Tehran's swollen face, messed up eye, and fractured cheekbone, their local affiliates were covering his recounting of the assault. WNBC reported with a swollen face, bruises, and black eye, Jahangar John Turan, owner of the David Park Gallery, which sells artwork by Andy Warhol, Salvador Dali, and Johan Miro, among other celebrated artists, says he was on his way to a meeting with a client after buying a mega hat when he came across a group of kids who described as being 18 to 20 years old while walking on Canal Street towards West Broadway. Fizzle said the 42-year-old told police he was on Canal Street in Soho around 6.30 Tuesday when was struck in the head from behind. Turan said he was leaving the N train wearing a mega hat when a group of teenagers yelled, Fuck Trump, and attacked him. CBS affiliate Turan's frustration with the matter that kind of ridiculous to be beaten up like this for wearing a hat. I wanted to put it on my TV stand. I had no intentions of wearing it in New York City because it's dangerous to wear a hat like this in New York City. According to local Daily News newspaper, Turan had turned down medical treatment at the scene, but he's but he, but he's irate that three days later, police had yet to track down any suspects. I felt angry about Tuesday and Wednesday when I didn't see them doing anything. Two days, no arrest. I think some of these cops are anti-Trump. Tran explained many on social media were pointing out the hypocrisy of the liberal media by not covering this. Yeah, why would they? Why? The media doesn't cover anything. If you remember a couple podcasts ago, we went straight into freaking, we're still talking about his racism and how he handled Puerto Rico. This story broke this week, breaking. 
when maybe millions of water bottles meant for victims of Hurricane Maria have been sitting on a runway in Ceiba, Puerto Rico since last year, according to FEMA, which confirmed the news to me late tonight after pictures posted today on social media went viral. Millions just sitting there. It's like fucking Katrina all over again. The buses are underwater. It's Bush's fault because nobody prepared for a fucking hurricane. And you can rightly believe none of this made the CNN debates. None. We didn't cover any of them. What did we cover? CNN sucks. And oh, these candidates aren't good enough for us. Philip Reigns. Uh, Clint Knight. Problem, too many candidates, not enough time. CNN solution, burn 10 minutes over, produce pageantry, immediately take a commercial break, kill another 12 minutes with needless opening statements, ask first factual question to 823. Other than that, a great start. Kathleen Parker, for the record, I hate what our political system does to well-meaning human beings. There's nothing to learn here. Yell, pound, shout. What a sad, sad time in our nation's history. I hate everyone and this isn't right. I simply cannot watch. Why? Not because of Democrats, but because our system ruins the best. This process is a disgrace and disservice to all serious people. Shame on everyone. Caleb Hull, what is real question CNN journalist Don Lemon asked tonight at the Dem debate? What do you say to those Trump voters who prioritize the economy over the president's bigotry. I want you to think, during the time of any debates on Fox, did you ever see Sean Hannity? No, he's a partisan. But CNN, they let Lemon track just trot the fuck out. And this is Lemon's night. We want to turn now to the issue of race in America. Congressman O'Rourke. President Trump is pursuing a re-election strategy based in part on racial division. How do you convince primary voters that you'd be the best nominee to take on President Trump and heal the racial divide in America? Senator Klobuchar, what do you say to those Trump voters who prioritize the economy over the president's bigotry? Harris, thank you very much. Senator Bennett, a question for you. Why are you the best candidate to heal the racial divide that exists in this country today, which has been stoked by the president's racist rhetoric. Secretary Castro, after the president's racist tweets attacking Baltimore and Congressman Elijah Cummings, the mayor of Baltimore slammed the tweets and said to the president, and I quote here, help us, send the resources that we need to rebuild America. So what would you do for Baltimore and other cities that need help? Yeah, that's a, a moderator at a debate. There's no pushback on anything. Any subject. There's some small pushback we'll hear on Warren's Medicare for All, but when it goes down to racist stuff, no, we're not pushing any of that crap. We're not talking fact checks. We're not doing it. It is straight up liberal nirvana. And I think that there's, there's plenty of articles out there, Democratic moderates concerned if these people can beat Trump. Yahoo News. Someone please vote CNN off the stage. Hollywood mocks Democrat debate. These are the people that want these people. Bradley Whitford. This feels like a West Wing episode. Michael Ian Black. We're five candidates in and so far I feel confident about a Trump re-election. Bill Maher. Two observations. This is going on too long and Joe Biden is having his best performance. Tuesday night debate saw... Other, Marianne Williamson, we're going to have a soundbite on her in a second, represented Tim Ryan, Senator Amy Klobuchar, 
all these fuckers. Uh, Williamson stole the spotlight several times throughout the night. But I found herself the butt of a joke among Hollywood left. Marion Williamson is like if the trailer for the movie Cats became a person. Dim debate, Jimmy Kimmel said. Steve Bullock and Marion Williams are two of the most convincing androids I've ever seen. Go science, said Seth MacFarlane. Comedy Central's The Daily Show joked, Marion Williams stuns the dim debate audience by ascending to a higher plane of dimensional consciousness. <laughs> But then you have the flocks, Alyssa Milano. I love Warren so very much. She looks incredibly presidential. Sarah Silverman, moment of the debate, Warren. Uh, Amber Tamlin, other stars chimed in. Some, I'm sorry, Warren, everyone else. I'm sorry, I fucked that up. Amber Tamlin, Warren, everyone else, nothing. Other stars chimed in. Some slamming CNN debate moderator, Jake Tapper and others taking swipes at her, showering praise on one candidate or another. Check out the latest Hollywood reaction below. Here's some of them. Full frontal poll. We're almost halfway over and nobody's left the stage. Which candidate is most likely to pull a Jackson Maine tonight? John Cusack. Sanders and Warren are the existential threat to the corporate globalist. John Leguizamo. I got Warren. Bernie Klobuchar. Mayor Pete. But the majority were saying, what the fuck? What do they stand for? Williamson, who's the Oprah flock, stands for cuckoo for fucking Cocoa Puffs. Water crisis. My response on the Flint water crisis is that Flint is just the tip of the iceberg. I was recently in Denmark, South Carolina, where it is, there is a lot of talk about it being the next Flint. We, we have an administration that has gutted the Clean Water Act. We have communities, particularly communities of color and disadvantaged communities all over this country, who are suffering from environmental injustice. I assure you, I lived in Gross Point. What happened in Flint would not have happened in Gross Point. This is part of the dark underbelly of American society. The racism, the bigotry, and the entire conversation that we're having here tonight, if you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. We need to say it like it is. It's bigger than Flint. It's all over this country. It's particularly people of color. It's particularly people who do not have the money to fight back. And if the Democrats don't start saying it, then why would those people feel that they're there for us? And if those people don't feel it, they won't vote for us, and Donald Trump will win. Thank you very much, Ms. Williamson. Thank you. We want to turn now to the issue of race in America. She doesn't even pull a full percentage. She doesn't pull a full percentage. Then this broke. Two sources familiar with the matter tell me that backstage in the CNN debate on Tuesday night, one of Williamson's guests told a CNN staffer that they were knocking on the door properly. They weren't knocking on the door properly. They proceeded to educate the staffer on the proper way to knock. There were three suggested levels of knocking. First a soft knock, then a louder knock, and finally the loudest knock. I'm told that Williamson felt the original knocking was too aggressive. Can't wait for replies like, people are dying. Is this really important? Folks, two tweets. I should note that as someone with ADHD who can be sensitive to certain sounds, a loud knock of slamming of a door can be quite disruptive. So she can't handle knocking, and she's going to be President of the United States. Do you remember 2016, boys and girls, in the clown car, and then Fox, and I think CNN did one, but there wasn't a whole lot of Republican. I don't think there was a CNN one. I think it was MSDNC or NBC did one. 
there was a certain level you have to go to. Well, they're finally going to do it now because they're realizing bringing out 20 clowns that all say the same shit isn't really a fucking debate. It's who can out-virtue signal the other. My favorite news, though, that came out of all of this is you get a lot of Harris. If you watch the MSDNC one, and we covered it, there's a lot of Harris in here. So why? 12 Comcast NBC exec funded Harris campaign before debate. Not only did NBC debate moderators give California Senator Harris extra time during the June debate, it turns out 12 executives of NBC Universal and parent company Comcast gave her campaign cash too. NBC was ready to crown Harris the victor after its two night Democratic dates debates June 26th and 27th and various programming the network heaped praise on the breakout star, calling her brave and powerful. But NBC moderators broke their own debate rules by giving Harris more time than she was supposed to get, some of which she used to attack Biden. The result exchange cost MSDNC host Chris Matthews to wonder if Biden could survive Harris. Now recently released FEC data revealed Harris and another kind of help from NBC money. 12 BC Universal Comcast executives donated to the Harris campaign in the months leading up to the debate. The FEC data included March and April 2019 donations, raising concerns about the potential conflicts of interest. Five news-related executives were of particular concern, including three executives who provide oversight to NBC News and two others who are in charge of Comcast political advertising sales. Those five were vice chairman of NBC Universal Ronald Meyer, chairman of NBCU Film and Entertainment Jeff Schell, president of NBC Universal International Television Distribution and Universal Networks International Belinda Menendez, Comcast Spotlight Senior Vice President and Marketing Executive Maria Weaver, and Vice President of Enterprise Sales and Global Commercial Development Katie ba- Back of Freewheel, a Comcast company. The Society Professional Journalist Code of Ethics clearly states that journalists should avoid conflicts of interest, real or perceived, disclose unavoidable conflicts. It also states that journalists should refuse credibility-harming special treatment and should avoid political and other outside activities that may compromise integrity or impartiality or may damage credibility. NBC Universal has not responded to media research requests. NBC moderators help Harris by extending her time Gave her an additional 60 seconds. And then they lauded her for days. I'm not going to go on the rest of this article. It's really huge. Because all of them literally influence what goes on the air. Back in the day, Keith Oberman got suspended for donating. So did Joe Scarborough. Oberman to a Democrat, Scarborough, Scarborough at the time was still a Republican, he gave to a Republican. But these executives are handing cash over. Then if you're wondering why your Google phone's blowing the fuck up during the debates, Google employees donated over $350,000 to Democratic presidential candidates. Yeah. So, now you know why it is that we have a bias in our media. Specifically, on the Peacock. I'm sure CNN's given millions to Democratic candidates. I'm sure there are no clauses anymore. Because CNN's all the fuck in. The only fact check I could find was from AP. May Kennard. 
The cages for young immigrants at the border were built and used by President Barack Obama. The Trump administration has used them too. Read more from the AP Fact Check Tonight Dem Debate. And somebody tweeted, of course, none of the moderators brought up the fact that Obama put kids in cages and let the candidates all blame Trump. Of course they did. This is just like 2016 all over again. It's just like 2016 all over again. They are going to anoint somebody, and then you're going to get the, they're so more qualified to be president. Because they can't pull out, well, they might pull out the most qualified person ever to run for president. They might pull it out again, because they're just fucking lackeys. And they think we don't have fucking DVRs and can't fucking search Google, or at least go to Newsbusters and see what they said in 2016. This debate's a fucking farce. It's so bad. I didn't play a lot, but here it is. As you heard from a lot of the moderates, from Delaney, also from Bullock, saying, uh, you know, this is like sort of wishful thinking. This is a laundry list of just wishes. It's not something that's actually going to uh, be possible and get, get Democrats elected. And to David's point, we're in a primary uh, where you want to love a candidate, you want passion, you want someone to represent you. There is a hunger in the Democratic Party for ideas. So just saying, well, you'll lose Wisconsin or you'll lose Michigan, uh, you might be right. This is an untested proposition, what Senator Sanders was just describing, what Senator Warren is describing. has not happened in our lifetime that a Democrat can run in a national election to be for Medicare for all, for free college tuition, maybe for reparations, uh, for giving health care to undocumented immigrants, a host of liberal proposals. Uh, way to the left of the last Democrat who won Barack Obama. Way, 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 way left to Bill Clinton, the Democrat to win before that. Uh, my first campaign was Dukakis. He was not as liberal as many of these things. That doesn't mean they can't win. It's just never been done before. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It's just never been done. So they're asking the party, take a huge bet on me. I can beat Donald Trump with this agenda that's never been done before. I think the interesting part was, did any of the moderates tonight, this is why we're going to watch tomorrow night too, does Joe Biden more passionately stake out that you can't do this to the Democratic Party? Why? Not just we can't win, but why? Why is my why is protecting Obamacare building on it better than Medicare for all? We'll see if that happens. To- I, I, this is, I think, the key. There's a difference in just what what went wrong in 2016. I think we're still all in therapy trying to figure <laughs> out what went wrong in 2016. And depending on who your therapist is, you have a different answer. I think for a lot of progressives, you are correct. Some of these ideas, they may be a bridge too far, and, and, and I have that same fear. But I just want to speak to the people who say, you know what, we don't care. At this point, when you have a president who has gone so far to the right and, said, and done so many things and been rewarded for the, for the audacity of it, why can't we be audacious? And why can't we actually fight for what we believe in? And so I think what you're seeing is... Because you want to win, it, well, and well, the no, economy no, is good. But listen, but listen this, this is where I, I really think we talk past each other. Electability is key for progressives as well, but we think you get, you, you're going to be more electable if you electrify the people who've never voted before, and those are going to be the people who need big solutions, and, may, and, and these moderate answers may actually demobilize our own base. That's the only thing. Right, we've got to take a quick break. And our, our EPA administrator ought to get the memo on climate change, because climate change is an economic crisis. It's a public health crisis. It's a moral crisis. It threatens our universe. If you have Medicare for Life or government uh, government health insurance, you'll have to have more benefits. And Bernie's talking about the eyeglasses, hearing aids, everything. Uh, there'll have to be more money. Oh, look. Well, your pay won't go up. But, uh, you, you guys dodged that tonight. No, no, it's no, not you, a dodge. You, you it's no, about where... Shane Tapper kept saying, 
how much of your tax is going to go up? And you'd say, you, you, you how said. How much are your costs going to no, go no, down? No, 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 different question. How much will your taxes no, go up? No, it's how much are your costs. Because I have a different it's how question. Much, it's how much families end up spending. I know that argument. But to, to somebody out there who likes their health insurance that they have through their union or wherever it is, what do you say to them about what lies ahead, about why they should give up their private you insurance? Know, I really wish we'd stop using Republican talking points on what people are giving up. It's not a Republican talking because point. This it's a is question. A, it's a question about where people are going to come out economically. Look, no, that's not I my spent, question. That's I not my question. My question is how much will taxes go up? But it sounds like you're saying to, to this person out there who likes their health insurance now, well, you don't really, you just don't understand that it's actually not that it's good, that, about, that when push comes to shove, no, no, it's not no. going to be there for it's them. It's about, there's going to be a transition to something that's better. President Obama got us partway there. And God, it made a huge difference. People are alive today. I know that's the answer that you'd like to give, but no, will your taxes go up? Will the your question is your total tell, cost. Okay, but there's no answer to the question of your taxes. There go up. is an answer to the question about your costs. How about taxes? Because it's costs that matter to people. I'm not kidding. Well, let me ask all right. Yeah, I mean, I think the real winner tonight was Elizabeth Warren. I mean, if you look back at her uh, debate performance, I think she's the best political athlete on the field. Joe Biden, at times, he didn't seem like he wanted the ball. He gave up his time uh, at times and didn't complete uh, his thoughts. He wanted to just just kind of, you know, fade into the background at, at times. I it's also, you, you wonder if Elizabeth Warren was on that stage, how he, how some of the other uh, sort of uh, folks who are in the lead in the polls would have would fare against. I mean, clearly her energy level. I mean, regardless of what you think about her politics, she is very. I mean, you know, she sat out here for I don't know twenty minutes last night, <laughs> taking all sorts of questions. There wasn't anybody with that same kind of policy chops and energy level on the stage tonight. But to the, back to that point. Uh, look, Biden got in the fight tonight, but just close your eyes and remember last night. Elizabeth Warren especially, Bernie Sanders as well, defending their progressive positions, defending go big, go bold on all these issues. Joe Biden got in the fight tonight, but the question was, the moderates last night tried, and I would argue failed, uh, to counter the philosophical argument, the why are you doing this argument of Warren and Sanders. Biden didn't do that tonight either. That was the question coming in. Would he rise up with, Demo with moderate Democrats, with centrists, like those two governors over there? Would you close your eyes and see Joe Biden winning a debate with, against Elizabeth Warren? I'm not saying he can't. He didn't tonight. If you took last night and merged it with tonight. He and, of course, during the debate, they did disparage some Obama in there. So we'll go back to NBC, who is all in for Harris. And you can pretty much tell that they did not like the way they did things over there because, you know, we not only coddle them, we also finance them. Tonight it was more like Gulliver's Travels. I mean, there was Vice President Biden tied down after rope after rope for his long political career. I had to defend every element of it going back, as, as uh, Michael Bennett said, back 50 years on issues like busing. It was very hard for him to play defense. He was 100% better or maybe 200% better than he was in the first debate. He seemed to be aware he was in a debate, which was a start for him. And I thought he was reciting a lot of stuff. In fact, a lot of times when he got to the end of his, his time, it was like he ran out of his recitation. And the weirdest thing to me, which I'm having a hard time with, is is it a smart strategy to attack the Obama administration? I mean, this is a, a Democratic president elected twice. I think he's the only Democrat we've had, you know, with the margins he's had since FDR that did that. Remains wildly popular in the Democratic Party. It was weird for me to watch about 40, almost 40 minutes 
um, of primarily attacks on the Obama administration's policies. It was odd. It's almost as if the debate forgot who's president. Because the attacks on Donald Trump, I don't, I don't remember his name being mentioned that much. And so it was odd for me for these candidates to debate changes in health care and their different policies on immigration as if Trump doesn't exist. Yes, they were attacking the Obama administration. Yeah, they were. They, were. Yeah. they spent a lot of time doing that. I, I think I if you're a Democratic candidate for president uh, and you spend your precious time on the debate stage attacking uh, the very popular former president, you're, you're not make, I, I think you're not making progress. You know, we've been talking about it, whether it's a strategy or a tactic or whether it's going to work or not work. I don't think it's about whether it's going to work. I think it's that he's he's willing to rip the country completely yes. apart in order to win re-election. He doesn't care about the consequences of basically ripping the scab off of white supremacy and the history of racism in this country, which already is leading to violence, can lead to more violence. It's like a tinderbox, and he's basically letting it go go free, and he doesn't care if anybody gets hurt. And that's the scary part for me. The story he's hiding is that his son... Son-in-law got together with an American billionaire to profit from selling secrets, uh, nuclear secrets, to a murderous foreign government. In the most dangerous part of the world, an impossible violation of the, impossible circumvention of the guardrails that are supposed to be put in. What This is what Jack Bauer is supposed to stop. This is Bond villain stuff. And it it seems to be, to me, that he will stop at nothing. And if that means exploding racism in the United States, that's what we're going to do. And that's what we're all going to have to live through. And it's also, I mean, I think it's also the case, and this is important to not sort of lose sight, is like, this, like you said, it's got to roll. It's, mm-hmm. This is who, like, he is, when he says it's not strategy, like, it is who he is, and it is going to get worse over yes. time. And in some ways, the most sort of there's a lot of effects of it that are horrible, but one of them is just watching him march the line forward and watching everyone else fall in to defend right. it. You know, it's, there's like, at what point, like, everyone should stop expecting that Mick Mulvaney will do anything but what he's doing, or right. Mitt Romney, or Mitch McConnell. <laughs> They're what, in. Well, yeah, what, at what point am I supposed to start believing that the Republican Party is for me? Right. Well, here's the thing, that's the problem we're having in this moment. The, the Republicans are completely invisible. They're absent. They, they go along with whatever he says, um, and I don't see the racism as simply a debate or a conversation about strategy, I think it's a threat. Yes. He's basically threatening us with going full racist, which yes, can right. lead to violence uh, in order to win re-election because certain people like Elijah Cummings are looking into the corruption in his administration, and he is afraid of that. And there's- I get that we don't, we don't, I don't want to have a long conversation about ideology and racism, and as a black person, I will say that, right? I want us to talk about the economy and our vision and how we're going to win. At the same time, it's so important in these moments that we call it out. I'm particularly proud of the way that folks on this network have done that because it feels like Donald Trump, it's not just that he'll take on anybody. He goes out of his way. He can't imagine that a black person could actually be a revered, renowned figure that could be beloved by black people and white people and brown people. And that's painful. It is, I mean, it is truly painful to then have to separate yourself out from that and say, okay, I still have to focus on day-to-day i i i shouldn't be surprised by all this but i still sometimes just go wow the tone is so different the questions are so different i mean the first question out of fox for trump was you're a sexist piece of shit do we remember megan kelly who ended up getting fired over an nbc i mean it's just atrocious then after all this 
outrage comes out and everybody's bashing CNN. This is the only article I could find that Jeff Zucker talked about. Trump has hurt our perception among Republicans. Trump has. Washington Post media reporter Sarah Ellis filed a story on CNN boss Jeff Zucker after following him around on July 24th, Mueller hearing day. She apparently asked what happened to CNN among Republicans, which had to be a bad ratings question. Zucker blamed Trump, but didn't consider that maybe CNN's incessant promotional and ideological tone against Trump played a part. At a recent Trump rally in North Carolina, a teenage rock band played its rendition of frequently rally slogan, CNN sucks. I think Trump has hurt our perception among Republicans to some degree, Zucker said. I think it's credibility unfortunate. You can't have the most powerful man in the world with his megaphone slamming the network every day and not have it have an effect. Ellison and The Post avoid any notion that CNN eroded its own audience based with incessant liberal bias and rabid editorializing and crabby chirons and anti-Trump stories that turned out to be untrue. Instead, she relitigates how CNN was too pro-Trump four years ago. It's a fair criticism that we took too many of his rallies live and unedited, Zucker said. But he also credits his relationship with Trump as providing an insight into the candidate that helped the network's coverage. I think it's one of the reasons going back, I don't really want to rehash, although we can talk about it. We recognize earlier that most in 2015 was his appeal would be, and that's why we took him much more seriously as a candidate. That's an insane position, said Tim Miller, the former spokesman for Jeb Bush 2016 campaign, and an outspoken never-Trumper. The idea that Zucker had some kind of idea about Trump's credibility that other networks did not is just not true. Trump was good TV, so they aired him. So this time, CNN promises it won't air any candidates' rallies live, and it's unedited, and CNN has held over 20 town halls with Democrat presidential candidates in 2020. Zucker says he wants to make sure CNN is not putting its finger on the scale for any single candidate. This is why the other 2015-16 Republicans are mad. There were no town halls back then, and Ben Carson and Carly Farina, Cruz, and so on. They clearly favored Trump, and four years later, they're putting their entire bodies on the scale against that one single candidate. Ellison demonstrates her soft touch by cueing Zucker to attack Fox, which is apparently required. Now, of course, Fox primetime lemma is stacked with Trump supporters, each more strident than the last, and CNN is the president's least favorite network. About Fox, which handily beats CNN in the ratings, Zucker says that he's comfortable with CNN's rating and asserts that Fox rating derived from its conservative bent. When you look at the last 20 years of American society, culture, and politics, I think they've been one of the most destructive voices in the entire process. And I think that they've had a terrible influence on the discourse in this country. The network has repeated shit all hundreds of times on air on his own Trump is going to lecture on the quality of discourse. CNN doesn't have a strident host. The Democratic, the, the Democracy Dies in the Darkness team sticks together. I think they're, they know their ratings are so bad that shit like this came out. CNN Saliza declares Trump winner of Democratic debate. An extended conversation about eliminating all private insurance, a top-tier candidate warned, fully embracing decriminalizing legal immigration. All of that is music to Trump's ear. He needs as much fodder as possible to cast Democrats as deeply out of touch and representative of creepy socialism he's got plenty on Tuesday night. No, he doesn't. They just have to open their mouth. They just have to open their mouth. And how do I know that? From MSDNC. This is how we'll close 
our CNN debate and go into hate tweets. We're not doing music today. We'll just do bumpers and move on, try to shorten the timetable because it's been about three and a half hours. Here's the polls. Nobody's for what these Democrats are for. Nobody wants open borders. Nobody wants to pay everybody free college. Nobody wants to give illegal citizenship. Nobody wants any of this shit. It's only the far, far left. 20% of the electorate. But this is all the media plays. So when things like this get out, on one of these networks, oh, it's newsworthy, my friends. So here's the poll guy from MSDNC. We'll go straight into hate tweets. Uh, Steve Kornacki standing by at the board with how uh, the numbers may back up what we saw tonight. Yeah, interesting that dynamic you're talking about, sort of the moderate candidates going after Warren, going after Sanders, and even sounding that alarm potentially about electability. We've got some new data that's out recently that measures some of these issues that came up, where Democratic voters are, the folks who are going to vote in the primary versus where general election voters are. There are some interesting divides here. This question of Medicare for all without private insurance. That was a major part of this debate tonight. You see Democratic voters, more than two to one support this. 64% support, 31% oppose. Ask the same question to all Americans. General election voters, the folks who vote in November, very different story. 41% say it's a good idea. A majority, 54%, say it's a bad idea. How about this one? How about decriminalizing border crossings? That obviously came up again tonight as it did the first debate. Democrats are split on this question. 45 support, 47 opposed. How about all voters, general election voters, overwhelming opposition on that, 27-66. Another issue you heard about, this is national health insurance. Should there be a program that makes it available to undocumented immigrants? Again, among Democrats, basically two to one support for that proposition, 60 to 32. Among general election voters, complete opposite. And one more that came up late in the night, that question of reparations payments amongst Democrats, 46 support. 40% say bad idea among all voters. Again, 27-62. So you see those sort of moderate candidates. This is what they're trying to express on that stage. But when the energy on the Democratic side is somewhere else, that's the power behind those uh, comebacks that you heard from Warren and Sanders. Steve Kornacki. Hate tweet of the day! How, after having done this and having met these people and getting this perspective uh, on uh, the president, how are you feeling about him these days? He makes me so angry, he makes me horny. What? <laughs> that range. I'm sorry, you got to back up. You got to back up. I'm not I backed not, up. I I'm not backed up. <laughs> I did not not quite follow the logic of that. You know when you got all this rage in your body and it turns into testosterone and you got to let it out somehow? Love Trump's hate. Love Trump's hate? Love Trump's hate? I procreate. You you procreate. That's that's your opposition to the president? Yeah. I mean, it helps me unplug. It helps me. My poor wife. But, uh... It's going to be, it's going to, it's a lot, I, I'm going to make a little army of Latin people that'll be like the worst thing that he could ever have to deal with. Well, I think it, it, it speaks volumes about a couple of things. One, the difference between Democrats and Republicans right now. One, about the president's judgment. He, he, he just doesn't understand what well-loved and iconic figures, people like Elijah Cummings and John Lewis are. 
and their history. He'll take on anyone, anytime. Um, and it says, um, it speaks volumes about the Republican Party. It's a pretty simple equation. These guys are afraid of the president. And what they're afraid of more than anything is his Twitter account. They are afraid that he will go after them. I mean, you know, I think uh, Lindsey Graham apparently was telling people in South Carolina that he had to get, go so far right because one tweet from the president could, could sink him. You know, a uh, uh, former member of uh, Congressman Sanford got sunk by a tweet. So the, you know, the, the moral backbone that many Republicans used to have, Donald Trump has broken. And you, yesterday, I mean, that was, it was the single most dramatic moment in the, in the Cohen hearing when, when Elijah Cummings had a chance to let Meadows just hang out there. And he saved him. And he saved and he validated him. And when Meadows had the chance, when all of these other Republicans have a chance to just sort of push back on the president, they, you know, they take the Mitt Romney approach, which is, what desk can I... Could it happen here? During last week's show, two days after Trump's harrowing North Carolina rally, low-lighted by racial transfer, send her back. We posed the question, could it happen here? It's nine days later, and we're still asking the question. Joy, and... This is something I'm going to keep coming back to on the show, and I, I'm, my head's not spinning in circles, and uh, I, I'm not going crazy. But not there, yet, not yet. <laughs> but there, there, there's so many stunning parallels to what Hitler was doing in the early 30s. Once again, I'm not saying Trump is going to slaughter six million Jews, but ranging from the fake news parallels to the seizing of new powers, the Reichstag in 33 versus, you know, Trump's non-existent national emergencies and declarations to ignore Congress, the racial scapegoating, the rallies, the um, isolating of himself, the creating of false other. He has the Justice Department in his pocket. He has one branch of the government marching blindly behind him. And we keep saying, oh, there's a safeguard. This couldn't happen. This couldn't happen. But every time, even when it comes down to, say, send her home, send her home, send her back. And then Kevin McCarthy, the third-ranking Republican, basically said, no, you didn't see that. That wasn't a chance. Right. So I firmly believe, knowing Donald Trump, that if you said to Donald Trump, Mr. Trump, in order to become Putin, in order to stay in office forever, in order to loot this country, you have to do X. He is capable of doing wherever your mind can take you for X. A thousand percent. Thank you. Absolutely. Michael Cohen said it. You know, he is an autocrat. In his mind, he wants to be president. I want to stop using the word. I want to start using the word fascist. Yeah, he's a fascist. And the tendencies, many, many tendencies like Adolf Hitler. Yeah. I said it. Throw me off the air. And at minimum, what Donald Trump has done, if they, at the most generous, he's taken the Republican Party of the United States and turned it into the National Party of South Africa from 1948 until 1990, because that party was a purely Christian fascists they call themselves christian national those are some great sound bites trump makes me so mad i get horny trump's a fascist christian and supporters have no backbone oh yeah but then they're followed up by these mika Brzezinski getting so upset about a trump tweet that they featured this on twitter that's how i picked it up that's why it's in tweets of the day and a cnn host thinks a nominee by Trump is too partisan. Welcome back. Welcome back to Morning Joe. Live look at Washington. And right in there, President Trump apparently is watching Morning Joe again. Donald, you really ought to find something else to do in the morning. It's just not healthy. It's tweeting about the show this morning, saying that there's anger on the show. My anger? No, I, I'm not angry. Don't worry, Donald. I'm not angry. 
I'm sad and disgusted uh, when pathetic politicians don't stand up to your racism, your racism. They're too afraid to. That's sad, and that's unbelievably pathetic to watch, and it's really bad for our country. So uh, just make sure you understand the emotion you're seeing here. It's really sad, and what I'm saying is what's happening with those who suck up to you to the point where they throw away everything they've worked for all their lives, including the trust their voters have in them, the trust that other members of the Senate and Congress have in them, that they cannot be a true friend and stand up for a friend when they are being called a racist by the President of the United States. Let's talk about Mark Meadows and how he's too busy sucking up to you than being the friend that Elijah Cummings was to him when he was called a racist during a hearing about you, by the way. And Mark Meadows cried like a baby when he was called a racist and had these crocodile tears in front of the entire committee and Elijah stood with him and said, you're not a racist. And Mark Meadows cannot return that favor to Elijah Cummings because he's too busy being afraid of you. That's sad and that's pathetic. So that's what you're seeing here, Donald, as you're tweeting away with your little thumbs. So, again, unlike Mark Meadows, just for the record, we're not afraid of you. We also have news, a major Trump cabinet shakeup. The president nominated Texas Congressman John Ratcliffe to be the senior most intelligence official in the country, the director of national intelligence. Ratcliffe is a Trump loyalist, a fierce critic of Robert Mueller's handling of the Russian investigation. That is spurring questions about Radcliffe's nomination, given what is supposed to be a non-political role of the DNI chief. Let's discuss now with Republican Congressman Chris Stewart of Utah. He sits on the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, we appreciate you taking the time this morning. Good morning. As you know, you sit on the Intelligence Committee, the, the Director of National Intelligence, uh, position created after 9-11, the senior most intelligence official in the country. If you look at the resumes of prior DNIs, James Clapper, he had served as director of two intelligence agencies, the DIA, the NGA, been in intelligence for 50 years. Uh, the DNI will oversee the heads of all the other intelligence agencies. Gina Haspel, she's been the CIA for decades. Uh, the head of the NSA, Paul Nakasone, he was with DOD. He commanded Cyber Command. He commanded the U.S. Second Army. You compare those resumes to Congressman Radcliffe. He's been on the Intelligence Committee for six months. Is that the experience necessary yeah. for this role? Well, I think it is. And you have to remember, he has a very different role in the DNI. He's not a technician. He's not, it's like the, the CEO of, of Home Depot isn't a plumber or an electrician. He's a business leader. And the DNI is essentially someone who works with Congress, works with the president. It's important that he has the president's trust. And he coordinates with all of these agencies. So it, it is a very different role. And I think Dan Coates, who did a remarkable job, uh, and, and I and I and I take a moment just to thank him for his service. I met with him for an hour last Friday, and, and the conversation we had re reinforced what a great job he did. And to and your he credit, had a similar similar uh, background to Mr. Ratcliffe. Well, but to be fair, he was he was a sitting uh, he was a sitting senator for for a number of years. Uh, Ratcliffe uh, yeah. only a couple of years. Uh, let's ask about the politics here, because as you know, you saw during the Mueller hearings, uh, Radcliffe, Congressman Radcliffe, uh, delivered a very uh, critical. A speech, you might say, of Bob Mueller. There wasn't really so much a question at the end. It's CNN's reporting that the president was impressed with that performance last Wednesday, and that put him over the top 
for this role again. I mean, you say it's an overseeing role, but but listen, they're, they're senior to the directors of 17, intelli 17 intelligence agencies with a great deal of experience. He needs their respect and their credibility. Are you concerned that politics made the difference here as opposed to experience? This is not supposed to be a political position. Yeah, no, I understand that. And I, and I promise you this, I know John, he won't make it a political position. And his role in Congress is different than it will be at DNI. And people adapt to different roles. My, my friend Mike Pompeo, for example, who sat with me again on the Intelligence Committee, went to the CIA, now Secretary of State. In each of those three positions, he has a different role. And he's, he's intelligent enough and adaptable enough that he understands those roles, and then he begins to fill those roles. I think John is the same way. His role and responsibilities as member of Congress, member of the Intelligence Committee, is very different than it will be at DNI, but he's very, very bright. He, again, he has the president's trust. He understands how Congress works, and he understands the overall picture of how these 17 agencies work. And I, I'm very confident he'll be able to provide the leadership. And one other thing, if I could, Jim, just very quickly, I, I don't believe at all that it was his performance on Wednesday that made the difference. I think this is a conversation that's been going on for quite a while, and I think John has impressed the president for a number of months. Well, it's CNN's reporting. We can disagree on, on, on how the president made this decision. I do want to get to the okay. role uh, of the DNI and any and, and other intelligence official, because you deal with classified intelligence in your role on, on the committee. You and I have spoken about it. I know how seriously you take that role as, as part of the function of, of keeping this country safe. You know that in these positions, these officials have to have the confidence and the ability and the courage to sometimes tell the commander-in-chief, things he doesn't want to hear. And there's a great deal of reporting from inside this White House. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, we, we know, told Secretary Kirsten Nielsen when she was at DHS not to bring up Russian interference in the election because the president didn't like to talk about that subject. Uh, is that something you're concerned about, that, that this uh, president doesn't assign people to these roles who are willing to say, listen, Mr. Pratt, I know you don't want to hear this, but this is a big deal. And, and do you believe that Ratcliffe yeah. is, is the guy who can do that? Well, I, I once again, I believe that he will. He, look, his loyalty, there's no question his loyalty is to the United States of America and the American people and protecting and defending these people. And he's not going to ever, ever turn that aside for any political considerations. And if you know John Radcliffe, you know that that is true. And, and the second thing is he does have the courage. And, and frankly, once again... All of these individuals do. Mick Mulvaney is a good example. He was a member of Congress. He was a partisan member of Congress, but he has served the president well in several roles. Mike Pompeo has done the same things. There's a number of people who, while they're in Congress, they may take on a little bit more of a partisan, uh, a partisan tone and a partisan voice, but they adapt that to their new responsibilities. At the end of the day, it's about leadership. It's about serving the American people. It's about protecting the freedoms of the Americans. And, and I'm confident John's going to be uh, serve that very, very well. Well, you're right. That's the right standard. Uh, we'll see where the confirmation hearing goes. Uh, Congressman Chris Stewart, always good to have you on the program. Thank you, sir. Name a president who didn't have acolytes around him. Sycophants. Name one. There are very few presidents that bring anybody from the other side in. And if they do, they don't have a voice. They don't meet with the president. It's just a figurehead. It's just somebody to be there to say, look, it, he reaches across the aisle. Come on, people. Then you got Politico getting butt hurt once again over Trump's um, merchandise, his campaign merchandise. Alex Instata 
Trump 20 is monetizing grievance politics through an elaborate merch campaign. Plastic straws, pencil neck Adams shift tees, Obama, Obama spying on Trump tees, stand up for American football jerseys, witch hut mugs. Say, has anyone introduced you to the DNC? Somebody says, I mean, what do they put out? And then, of course, we had a shooting. The only thing that really broke out is that they said the shooter had a AR. But there wasn't a lot of politics on it because they couldn't key down that he was a Democrat, a Republican. So we didn't get our usual, our usual stuff that Trump's rhetoric is killing America. We got this shit, Rosanna Arquette. All the shooters in America have been white male, white terrorist. The end. And, of course, Chris Cuomo. We, we had to have Chris Cuomo say some stupid-ass shit. Hablando de masacres, la Asociación Americana del Rifle parece que últimamente ha perdido su habitual poder, lo que ha generado dudas sobre el papel que jugará en las elecciones del 2020. Dayanis López nos amplía esta información. Adelante, Dayanis, contigo. Adriana, la NRA no solo ha sido un aliado importante para los candidatos a favor de los derechos de las armas, también recordemos que en el 2016 estuvo detrás de la victoria presidencial de Donald Trump, convirtiéndose en la llave que lo llevó a la Casa Blanca. If you want to talk about the shooting in Gilroy, California, this is the picture to see. Six-year-old Stephen Romero. This is the picture to see. Thirteen-year-old Keila Salazar. They were shot dead along with Trevor Irby, who was in his 20s. All three stolen from their loved ones by hate. A dozen others were injured. The murderer legally bought the rifle. Of course, he bought it in Nevada, took it into California, where it is illegal to buy the same weapon. That's a problem that we just can't seem to fix. He got it in by cutting a hole in a fence to sidestep metal detectors. But I want to talk about why he did this. He posted two Instagram messages right before the attacks, okay? That is called a present sense impression in the law. It's not a maybe. This is what was on his mind right before he killed those people. And I don't understand why we're hiding from it. The book he suggested is a white supremacist book from the late 1800s. Don't dismiss what this murderer believed. He's now dead, so his days of acting on hate are over. But there are a lot more like him. And we have to stop hiding from that fact. Just ask Trump's FBI director, Christopher Wray. I will say that a uh, majority of the um, domestic terrorism uh, cases that we've investigated uh, are motivated by some version of what you might call white supremacist violence, but it includes other things as well. Number of hate crimes up, number of white supremacist groups up, number of racist rallies up, the amount of white supremacist propaganda up. But too many are saying, well, we don't know that this guy was a real racist or a real white supremacist. And that rationale is extended as protection to this president for not addressing what seems pretty clear about why this happened. I am not blaming the president. But what you ignore, you empower. Why strain to defend people in Charlottesville? Why play down what happened in New Zealand and why? Yep, it's Trump's fault. It's always Trump's fault. Our next hate tweet comes from this bullshit. Hollywood, the independent film industry in which Palestine Palestinians stage accidents and injuries sustained at the hands of IDF. 
It's a bit like when the, the these teens kept slapping and kicking Israeli soldiers and hope he'd lose his temper on camera, and then they could edit out the relentless taunting. This one was faint whore. Good morning. I'm a Palestinian child. My name is Mohammed Rabi Alian, five years, from Al-Izwahi. I am now in the Israeli police station in Jerusalem to investigate me for throwing stones at the occupation police. Do not worry about me. I bought chips, biscuits, chocolate, and some juice. This is precaution because they may arrest me. Arrest me. My mother, father, and sister are with me now. Please pray for my freedom. Finally, my greetings to the Red Cross and UNICEF. Liberals lose their mind, push it all over the place. And then Asif Gabor. Fake news, entire campaign based on lies. Tell us what the three-year-old Muhammad Alain from East Jerusalem was called for investigating by Israeli police. But in the official police summon written the name of the father, he decided to bring his son to incite against Israel. Nobody checked it. Nobody. Because they're too busy doing this. The Washington Post. Mailbank. Mitch McConnell is a Russian asset. He covered the last podcast. CNN, in a spirited speech on the floor, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell turned his sights on opinion journalist Dana Milbank and NBC host Joe Scarborough, who respectively called McConnell an asset. I don't normally take the time to respond to critics of the media when they have no clue when they're talking about, but this modern-day McCarthyism is toxic and damaging because of the way it warps out our entire public discourse. Facts matter. Details matter. History matters. And in our nation is losing the ability to debate public policy without screaming about treason. That really matters. He's spot on. So Trump did a tweet And the Washington Post. Trump makes unfounded claim the Washington Post is a Trump asset, a Russian asset. President Trump accused the Washington Post on Tuesday of being a Russian asset, a basis claim he made to defend Senate Majority Leader McConnell. Trump was asked by a reporter outside the White House to respond to the Post opinion piece published Friday under the headline, blah, blah, blah. The Washington Post called Mitch McConnell, what, Trump said? I think the Washington Post is a Russian asset by comparison. The article written by Post colonist Dana Milbeck criticized McConnell for blocking legislation to secure U.S. election systems against attacks by Russian and Russian influence and other agents. Milbank wrote that they're refusing to defend the United States against future attacks. McConnell was doing Russian President Vladimir Bidding's bidding. Comfortably smug. Washington Post is a garbage rag. Fop Tony Reid. Why would a real news agency with democracy dies in the dark do a story fact-checking a tweet against their own paper? Why? The only people reading your paper are people who are sycophants. They can't get enough, they just can't get enough of Trump hate. They need more, so they go to the Washington Post, the New York Times. Why do you have to do that? Are you 12? He made a statement. It wasn't like it was a a, a fucking, he can go on national TV and do a fucking speech about it. Then we got Bill de Blasio listing all the losers. Sharpton, Cummings, Omar, AOC, Arian Presley, Tlaib, Waters, Lewis, Federico, Obama. Trump, is this really your campaign strategy? Attack as many people of color as possible. Lynn Patton, no. 
because he also attacked your lame white ass for exact same thing the above non-white politicians have done for their districts, which is nada. POTUS gave coming over $16 billion last year for his district alone. Where is that and our $30 million a week to New York's cha going? And then she went on the air and lost her mind. This is, we, we need more of these people for Republicans. She's a woman of color, but she don't take no shit, and I really like her. Uh, this administration, and I want to say this expressly to Mary Young and Michael Steele and Al Sharpton, who today called out the president and said, let President Trump put his money where his mouth is. Well, boys and girls, I have a message for you. President Trump has given $16 billion in 2018 alone to Elijah Cummings District and federal grants. We have given more money in homeless funds to Baltimore than the last administration. We have given more money in community development grants than the last administration to Baltimore. My question to you guys is this. What are you actually doing with the money so that it benefits residents in the community for once instead of deep pocket crooked politicians? And I know we're going to get into more. To our tweets of the day, this one is... uh it sounds negative, but I, I like it because it just sums up the left. Megan McCain, the liberal studio audience on The View, often boos me. It's not easy being the most conservative pundit on a liberal program like The View, which airs weekdays on ABC. Just ask Megan McCain, daughter of late, blah, 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 who's been a liberal, blah, 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 blah. In an interview posted last Thursday by Carrie Baton, a contributing editor to Elle magazine, McCain described the set, the audience of The View boos me, McCain says when I asked her to elaborate on feeling controversial it's a very liberal audience the studio and they're very vocal people are always looking to turn you into something else my presence on the show has been nobody is going to bully me nobody's going to talk down to me and nobody's going to pull that kind of shit that's been pulled on a lot of people in this chair and i will be vocal and i will live in the moment for better or for worse even though she said she would like to be less re- reactive to comments made by her by her fellow co-hosts Baton also noted, each week a fresh wave of drama tries to knock McCain over. Occasionally a spat with one of her more left-leaning co-hosts will go viral. On other weeks, there is an uproar over something she said in a heated segment about immigration or abortion. When there's nothing serious to latch on to, Baton posted angrily, there might simply be a surge of blind frustration aimed at the good old-fashioned nepotism that helped boost McCain to her current perch or a chorus of cackles about something she's chosen to wear. During a recent appearance on ABC This Week with George Stephanopoulos, McCain took on the Democrats and anti-Semitism. We're having conversation about anti-Semitism. We should be looking at the most extreme on both sides, McCain said. McCain tells me her concern over anti-Semitism and testified during the time of Women's March, one of the event's co-chairs refused to condemn Farrakhan. I would bring up... Congresswoman Omar and some of her comments that got so much attention, and in my opinion, Pelosi wasn't hard enough in response to her trafficking in anti-Semitic language. Comments that the Jewish people had hypnotized the world and people only cared about all the Benjamin. Els Baton wrote, This giant leap of reasoning was more than enough to sound the Meghan McCain says something detestable alarm bells. A few hours later, the co-host was inundated with angry emails. 
I wasn't surprised. Bigotry is called out on my side, and it should be. The alt-right is disgusting. They're very dangerous. But I don't understand why someone like Omar should get a pass. I stand by everything I said, Baton wrote. Her audience doesn't simply dislike her political sensibilities, which are proudly establishment conservative rather than red pill. They think she's a stubborn, spoiled brat of Haruka Salt proportion. She also wrote about the combative McCain interview on Late Night with Seth Meyers. McCain said, I don't know if Meyers could have gotten away with speaking to a liberal woman the way he spoke to me. I don't think he wanted to have a conversation. I think he just wanted to lecture me. McCain explained she has become more conservative under Trump. The explosion in the culture war which has happened with the rise of Trump has made me more conservative. No Republican is good enough for a certain group of people. All Republicans are evil to a certain segment of the media. And you become more tribal and more to the territorial of your people and what you represent. And that's certainly happened to me. One of the co-hosts regressed is that she said she hated Hillary Clinton on the show in 2016 and even called the Democratic presidential candidate Crooked Hillary before noting, I apologized on TV and said I was contributing to the polarization of the country. I really regret saying that. She was friends of my dad. It's really not fair. Newsbusters reported in early July that McCain was considering leaving The View because she felt like a caged animal after almost two years of getting into constant charge confrontations with her liberal skanks. However, that didn't happen. I'm innately a fighter, but I do question if there will be a certain time where it just won't be worth being a Republican woman being screamed at all day, she says. For now, she's taking the heat and trying to provide some sense of balance on the hot topics. It's our country. Chadwick Moore. Coming out gay at 15-year-old in Red America was a breeze. I was celebrated. Coming out as a conservative of New York City in early 2017, in my 30s, Fired from my job, abandoned by all my friends, and banned from gay bars. Just two days ago, I was asked to leave a Brooklyn gay bar again. It's worse. It's just worse. It's the worst ever, folks. It's just fucking horrible. You say you're conservative, you are labeled in our country. In the media and certain parts of on the coast. It's groupthink. It's fascism. Fascism. This week, um, this one made our tweets of the day because they slammed them. New York Times columnist says this, a key, Senator Mitch McConnell's net worth, 2005, 2,962,000. 2015, 26,927,000. Increase, 23,965,000. How does a senator earn 193,400,000 a year, increase their net worth by $2.4 million a year. Josh Helm, his wife's mom died. Nice of you to bring it up from five years ago. Team Mitch, this is how fake news is manufactured. 3,000 likes on the question, 16 liked on the shape old correction. That will make headway in our media. But nobody researched how Pelosi, Schumer, Reed all became millionaires. Nobody researches. How do they get their money? I mean, Pelosi's husband's with the company making money. Getting information from his wife. That's like a million stories on that. In conservative media. To our tweet of the day. And then we're going to have a little pause. I'll play something. Just get a little break for your ears, for my voice. And we'll go into news and social media nugget. This is live action. 
And I made it our tweet of the day because abortion's kind of fallen off the map lately because they're not asking those questions in those debates because they want to stay away from that. They're just going with open borders. They call PPFA, who once again says they do prenatal care, and we've shown repeatedly on the show they don't. And this is their response. Once again, they don't do prenatal care. Prenatal care. These are the kinds of services that folks depend on Planned Parenthood for. And a president who will fight for prenatal care. Prenatal care. Um, and that, that is what we want to focus on. Thank you for coming for How can I assist you today? Hi, I was hoping to make an appointment for prenatal care. For what type of service? Um, prenatal care, pregnancy care. We don't have prenatal care here. Planned so Parenthood offers abortions, so they don't offer prenatal care. Okay, just abortions. Yeah. Unfortunately, no, we wouldn't provide any pre- type of prenatal services here at Planned Parenthood. We're not a prenatal care provider. No Planned Parenthood does prenatal care. We don't offer prenatal care at Planned Parenthood. We specialize in abortions. You know, that's what our ultrasounds are for, to see how far along the um, patient is. Planned Parenthood, we do yeah. birth control, you know, things yeah. like that to me. We check for STI, but we don't do prenatal. We tell you you're pregnant, and we also prefer to do the abortions. Okay, okay. So, uh, we don't do any prenatal services No here. prenatal. No, we don't do prenatal services. I mean, it's called Planned Parenthood. I know it's kind of deceiving. Do you have OBGYNs here? We do not, no. Oh, you don't? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Which is a deceptive name, right? <laughs> Did you know that Planned Parenthood can take care of all your reproductive health needs? Whether it's an annual exam, pregnancy testing and counseling, prenatal care. Thank you for holding this. How can I help you? Hi. I was wondering if you guys offer prenatal care. No, we don't. Not at the moment. Oh, we don't offer any prenatal care. Not at all at Planned Parenthood. Okay, so not at any Planned Parenthood. They don't have prenatal Correct. care. Do any of the Planned Parenthoods? No, in- we do not offer any prenatal care. to 
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. It's why they call me Bad Company. And I can deny Bad Company till the day I die. Till the day I die. Were you trying to get crazy with this scene? Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. Military Corner. Two U.S. service members were killed Monday in Afghanistan's official announced Tuesday, bringing the casualty total to 15 deaths for the year. This year's casualty count now matches the total for 2018, previously the deadliest year for Operation Freedom Sentinel since the sustainment and next advisory mission began in 2015. The announcement came from the headquarters of Operation Resolute Support, the NATO-led mission to train, advise, and assist troops. The service branch of the two troops was not identified in the announcement, nor was the location Afghanistan. But in short... Monday, Army Colonel Arthur Sellers, commanding officer of the 3rd Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division, revealed the two troops were paratroopers with 3rd BCT. Rear detachment leaders are gathering resources and will make them available to the paratroopers' loved ones to help them in difficult times. Uh, 40-year-old Army Sergeant Major James Sarter, a Green Beret, and 2nd Battalion, 10th Special Forces out of Fort Carson, Colorado was killed by enemy small fire, and they don't have the other guy's name on here. That's just a weird story, but God be with them. U.S. and British special operators were killed in friendly fire incident, SOCOM admits. The U.S. special operations soldier and British operator were who died during a deployment to Syria last year, were killed in a friendly fire incident, not as a result of enemy action as originally announced. Officials with SOCOM 
confirmed Monday. In a statement, SOCOM confirmed the accuracy of British Ministry of Defense investigation, which included Army Master Sergeant Matthew Dunbar and British Sergeant Matthew Tonro were killed by an apparent accidental detonation of explosives carried out by a coalition member of their team. Five other members of the team were wounded in the blast. A U.S. investigation had attributed the explosion that killed the two highly trained and experienced non-commissioned officers to an enemy improvised explosive device, usually called a bomb. But it was them. That's fucking horrible. That's just that's just horrible. Coalition says strike kills ISIS jihadists in Syria. A U.S.-led coalition airstrike killed five jihadists in eastern Syria on Monday. A spokesman said in the first such raid since the collapse of the Islamic State group Caliphate. Coalition's forces conducted a strike against a dash cell near Bashura, a town in Derir Izaro province, said coalition spokesman James Rolong, using an Arabic acronym for ISIS. This operation eliminated five terrorists who played a key role in facilitating attacks across the region against security forces and innocent civilians. Yay, team! Then this one surprised me. The U.S. troops want to keep deploying to Afghanistan, enlisted leaders say. The general attitude in the ranks on risky deployments is quite the opposite of what they might, might many might believe, said Army Sergeant Major Timothy Matheny, the top non-commissioned officer for the NATO Resolute Support Mission in U.S. Forces Afghanistan. They're disappointed when you have to tell them about the force cap on the estimated 14,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Matheny said in a Pentagon briefing Wednesday by senior NCOs on a range of issues. The opportunity to deploy is also a factor in recruiting and retention, he said, pointing out to what he said is a 108% retention rate for those serving in Afghanistan. Other senior enlisted leaders of the briefing echoed Matheny stating that the chance to deploy overseas and Asian defense is a motivating factor for those who join. And that's true. <clears throat> you get 108% overseas because they're with their brothers. Uh, little known fact, I was offered to go back to the States. Uh, when we got over there, we weren't going to do a whole lot. We had a couple of firefights, blah, blah, blah. But we're just guarding, whatchamacallit. I had a breakdown. My lieutenant freaked because I told him to go away. And I was just really, I'd been a year away from the family. We were doing nothing. I was bored to death. I was guarding MREs. And I just had a moment of weakness. He got with the first sergeant. First sergeant got with me. And they said, well, we can send you back. And I'm like, no, not going back. It's a boring war, but it's a war. Of course, from there, it picked up. But, man, I, I was just depressed. Um, it wasn't I was scared to die. It was I was just homesick. Hadn't seen my family for a year. I was home for four months, and I left. It was kind of rough. U.S. service member does the biggest dumb shit move I've ever seen. Checked a mil- missile launcher in their luggage in Baltimore Airport. Federal officials said they found a missile launcher in a man's luggage at the airport in Baltimore. The Transportation Security Administration said in a statement that the military-grade weapon was located in the man's checked luggage at Baltimore International Thoroughgood Marshall Airport. TSA officer called airport police and found the man and detained him for questioning. The identified traveler said he was in military and coming home from Kuwait. He wanted to keep the weapon as a souvenir. The TSA said the missile launcher was not a live device, but it was handed over to State Fire Marshal Disposal. The man lives in Jacksonville, Texas, which is about 115 miles east of Dallas. He was ultimately allowed to catch his flight home, but he's going to get busted. Yeah, you can't do that. Can't do that. I know of a few people that did sneak stuff out. I won't say their names on air. They're good dudes. They're in my platoon, but... 
It wasn't easy because these are not, this isn't Vietnam. You just can't go over and grab shit. F-22 pilots first to get Air Force new state-of-the-art flight suit. The Raptor pilots in Hawaii are some of the first to try out a service new integrated aircrew ensemble, or the IAE, flight suit. Active duty and Air National Guard pilots from the 199th and 19th Fire Squadrons at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickman will sport brand new custom flight gear, fit, custom fit gear on stealth fighter missions next year. According to a recent Air Force news release, representatives from the Human System Program Office at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, home to Air Force Material Command, gave pilots a rundown on how to make the most of the upgraded and consolidated flight suit. It's all strategically placed so items are not on top of each other, and it minimizes the occurrence of friction, hot spots, or wear down on the system. Huh. So I'm assuming their balls won't get sweaty. That's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Which carries us in to our college. Crazy. Alleged Antifa members hurl eggs, drink, at Trump supporters. Two pro-Trump YouTube hosts who have previously almost been locked in a university lecture hall by alleged Antifa member who didn't get charged recently had eggs thrown at them by more purposeful members of the group. The incident, which involved Operation Cold Front hosts Celine Juma and Dion Thompson, comes amid numerous Antifa attacks making headlines. Juma and Thompson were previously also chain-locked in a room by another alleged Antifa member speaking at a college Republicans meeting. In a YouTube video, alleged Antifa members are shown egging and throwing a drink at the two hosts who are wearing Make America Great Again hats while holding a free hug for Trump support sign. A student was conversing with Juma and Thompson was another victim of Seattle, Washington attack. It was not clear what led up to the moments caught on video as recording is edited. However, the clip clearly shows the men in Make America Great hats having objects thrown at them, seemingly without provocation. provocation. Scrolling text in the video states the police were called but never showed up to the scene. Seattle Police Department did not respond to campus reform requests for comments because we don't give a fuck about Trump supporters because we're liberals too. In the end, you can track it down to Emerald City Antifa. Whoever docks the OCF live stream today, that was beautiful. And hit us up if you got screenshots before they delete your comments. It's a terrorist organization. Former Antifa member, leftist violence happening in college all throughout. Former Antifa activist Gabriel Nandales says that the violence and threats of violence being perpetrated by the radical leftist group is not limited to just a few campuses. Nadalis, an employee at Campus Reform Parent Organization, the Leadership Institute, joined Fox News host Laura Ingram on the Ingram Angle Friday to discuss the radical group's tactics. The conversation took place just hours before President Trump declared via Twitter that he is considering label Antifa a domestic terrorist organization. Consideration has been given to declare Antifa the gutless radical left whack jobs who go around hitting only non-fighters. People over the head with baseball bats, a major organization of terror would make it easier for police to do their job, Trump tweeted. Nadala spoke about one particular Antifa-related incident in which campus reform recently reported, in which involving which incoming conservative freshmen at the university were told they would be doxxed if they joined conservative groups. While UT Austin was initially tight-lipped on the threat, but eventually said it was seeking advice for possible legal remedies from a Texas Attorney General. This is what we have to do because it's not the only college. It's not just Dartmouth. It's not just UT. It's happening college everywhere. A former Antifa member later encouraged dialogue rather than violence. If you're wearing a black mask, you're more, likely, more than likely up to something that's not good. What did our college professors do? Professor, the concept of American exceptionalism 
is absurd. A professor from Massachusetts School took to Twitter in late July accusing Americans of being irrational, insisting that the concept of American exceptionalism is absurd. Simmons University communication professor Rachel, there it is, Gansbrotsky, who identifies herself online as Politics in Pink, implied that the Mueller testimony and effectiveness was a result of Trump voters' incapabilities of rational analysis in a Thursday tw- Twitter thread discussing the Mueller report, giving the framing the testimony did not go well. Journalists using the no- nothing new standards have missed the substance, and Democrats have been unwilling, unable to mount a vigorous case. For some reason, they thought laying it all out for America to see it would work. Gantz Borinsky then clarified to what the type of America she was referring. You know, the same Americans only read the headlines or articles they share. The same Americans allow Trump to make it through the primary, let alone in the White House. Rational analysis is not exactly the American way, she added. This example of professors the same for the American way is not isolated. Two days prior, she served the notion of American exceptionalism was absurd, pointing to Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister of the UK as a rationale for this. I think it's important to take a moment and acknowledge that Boris Johnson is actually going to be the next Prime Minister of the UK, she wrote in a tweet referenced by her previous one. Wow, just wow. Gantz Sports runs a blog called Politics in Pink. Publication was claimed to publish a variety of feminist voices is meant to combat the supposed reality that political concepts are often dumbed down or simplified for women. It felt to me that when we talk to women about politics, we talk in a narrow terms and we can condescending to them, she wrote. On the website, she proclaims that her blog is meant for smart young women, many of whom are just beginning to pay attention to politics and are lesbians. <laughs> he didn't say that. <laughs> she didn't say that. University of Michigan for social justice agenda is now spreading beyond campus. UAM is opening a social justice-themed high school in a partnership with Detroit Public School Community District. The school at Mary Grove will focus on social justice and engineering, according to the Michigan Daily. DPSCD spokesman Crystal Wilson said the social justice-themed school at Mary Grove has been designed to develop critical thinkers and community-minded citizens who have skill and knowledge to be makers and leaders, creating a more just and equitable future. Translated as, as we want to brainwash these motherfuckers from jump! I'm sure somewhere in Berkeley there is a social justice-themed kindergarten. White's bad. UC Berkeley, we apparently overlooked new college ranking reporting guidelines. University of California Berkeley has been taken off the U.S. News 2019 Best College Rankings after U.S. News says it handed over incorrect alumni contribution data. They're too busy trying to shut up white people. Yeah. Except for Antipop. Yeah. Trans woman suing female aesthetics for refusing to wax genital testifies at Human Rights Tribunal. I'm going to stay with this Jessica Yanev knucklehead. She filed 16 complaints against female aestheticians. Aestheticians. I don't know how to say that fucking word. Most of whom are immigrants with the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal after they refused to wax her junk. Yanev testified for the Human Rights Tribunal on Friday. None of these providers had any issues with anything until I mentioned I was transgender. Why was it not brought up saying... Hey, we don't do services for male genitalia, Yanev argued. Yanev, who identifies a female but has male genitalia, contact the business through Facebook Messenger requested to book an appointment for waxing service, including Brazilian wax. We already know about this. It's not about the service at all. When you start discriminating against certain service elements and certain protected classes, that's when we have a real issue. 
As noted by the Daily Wire, earlier this month, a woman targeted by Yanez, a Brazilian immigrant named Marcia da Silva, was forced to close up her small business due to the complaint. Some of my clients have been very significantly affected on a personal level. Another client also closed her business. She's been depressed, anxious, sleepless, yada, 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 yada. Here's the problem there, Yanef. You can't. You guys say we can't gender you. So this is no different than women that are in labor, that they don't know they're in labor, and they come in, they treat it like it's a fucking uh, kidney stone, and they find out it's a fucking baby. This is your work. You made the rules. You made the rules. You're rocking around saying you're a woman, so they book you an appointment because they do waxing for women, and then you pull out your cock and balls, and they don't know what the fuck to do. So, I mean, what do you expect? Weightlifter Hubbard becomes lightning rod for criticism of transgender policy. Transgender weightlifter Lauren Hubbard, gold medal winning performance of the Pacific Game, constitutes, continues to reverberate along after the event with a New Zealand women's group demanding sport authorities put a stop to unfair competition. Hubbard, who competed for the New Zealand in men's weightlifting before a transition in her 30s, won two gold medals and a silver in three of the women's heavyweight categories at the Games in Samoa earlier this month. She topped the podium ahead of Samoan runner-up and Commonwealth Games champion Figata Stowers in both categories, triggering outrage in the Pacific Island nation. With Hubbard free to compete next year's Tokyo Olympics, the 41-year-old has become a lightning rod for criticism in the International Olympic Committee guideline for the inclusion of transgender athletes. On Monday, New Zealand-based lobbying groups Speak Up for Women, which advocates that sports must be categorized by sex rather than gender identities, called on the country's Olympic Committee and Sports Minister to defend women's sports. Kiwis, New Zealand, New Zealanders, know that male competing in women's sports is blatantly unfair. The group spokesman Annie O'Brien said the call followed criticism from British advocates, Fair Play for Women, who wrote on Twitter that sports officials need to wake up in the days after Hubbard's Pacific Game title. IOC guidelines issued in 2014 said any transgender athlete who completed a woman's competed as a woman, provided their testosterone levels are below 10 nanomoles per liter for at least 12 months prior to their first competition. That has been criticized by some scientists who say it does little to mitigate natural biological advantages enjoyed by male-born athletes, including bone muscle density. Researchers at the Dundita-based University of Otaga said in a peer-reviewed study published earlier this month that the IOC guidelines were poorly drawn and the mandated testosterone level was still significantly higher than that of women. The study advocated for the IOC digits binary approach to competition and consider inducing a transgender category or find another solution that balances the desires for inclusion with the needs for a level playing field. The opinion of scientists, although valid, are just opinions said New Zealand's mountain biker Kate Weatherly, who transitioned as a teenager and has become a national champion competing against women. I'm not winning by crazy margins, and the anecdotal evidence does not point to me having little to no advantage. You're full of shit. Hubbard has shunned the media since competing in the Commonwealth Games at Gold Coast, where she was favored to win heavyweight gold by injured, but injured herself during a lift. Her goal to the Pacific Games renewed her profile and her status as a contender for the international events. I really don't think he, she, should ever participate in this tournament. But I realize we have to be inclusive and we cannot exclude these people. Samoan Prime Minister Teluli Salani Majola told Reuters of Hubbard's participation in the Pacific Games. They ought to participate in these games in their own category. And they should. It should be a different category, a different bathroom, 
We're not saying you can't be a GOAT. What we're saying is, it's not fair. It's just not fair. But what does the ACLU say? Shut your fucking mouth, Tony Reid. Let's make this loud and clear. This is a tweet. Transgender people have the right to participate in sports consistent with who we are. Policies that prevent trans athletes from competing on teams that align with their gender exclude trans athletes from competing at all. There's a long history of excluding black girls from sports and policing our bodies. I'm a runner, and I will keep running and keep fighting for my existence, my community, and my rights. Terry Miller. Dude. Dick and ball flapping sprinter. Mm Mm-hmm. When misinformation about biology and gender is used to bar transgender girls from sports, it amounts to the same form of sex discrimination that has long been prohibited under Title IX, a law that protects all students, including trans people, on the basis of sex. Misinformation about biology. How can you misinform? Dick balls. Man. Gooch ovaries woman. Biology class done. But when you think it can't get any more crazy, when you think it can't, here comes pink news. You fucking transphobes. Don't you know that women have periods too? My name is Jamie Raines and I'm a trans guy who's been on testosterone for a little over seven years now. And I'm here today to talk to you about what it's like to experience periods as a trans guy. One of the biggest misconceptions is that periods are only experienced by women. But in reality, transgender men are real men. We're just born a little bit different to other guys. And it can be quite hard to navigate having periods as a guy when everything to do with periods is aimed very much towards women and is very, like, female-orientated and all the advertising and packaging and just all of that stuff. What the fuck, fuck? You know, yeah, if your dick's bleeding... It's not a period, dude. You need to go see a doctor. I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, I'm not a doctor, nor am I a scientist. But once again, dick, balls, man, gooch ovaries, woman. Balls don't have periods. They don't need to shed any lining. They only shed semen. Okay, I'm getting crude now, but I don't know where to fuck go with this. These fucking people are nut jobs. I understand gender dysphoria. I have no problem with gender dysphoria. I have a problem with people ignore gender dysphoria and push out as edicts that if you don't suck up to this idea, you're evil. No, I'm not evil. It's called science and biology. We all had to go through the class. Did these people not go through the class? That's another good question. I'm about to do some research on that. What is happening to biology class and sex education in our schools? Are they showing dicks that have periods? I'm, I'm just asking because I, I don't think it happens. So then Mario Lopez steps on his dick. Dangerous for children to choose their gender. My God, if you're three years old. That's not stepping on your dick, if you ask me. But in our society, oh, he got clubbed. This past April, Charlize Charlize Theron, who's one of the hottest women in Hollywood, and now she's not, confessed that she had been treating her seven-year-old adopted son like a girl. 
I'm Not a Boy Now Access Hollywood host Mario, Mario Lopez is taking heat on social media for calling Theron decision dangerous. According to pop culture, Mario Lopez made his comments during an appearance on the Candace Owens show last month where the two discussed the weird trend in Hollywood wherein celebrities are transitioning their children at young age. My God, if you're three years old, I just think it's dangerous as a parent to make this determination then. It's sort of alarming, and my gosh, I just think about the repercussions later on. Lopez said that parents need to be the adult in this situation when their children do what children usually do, say confusing things about their own identity. Charlize Theron told the Daily Mail in April that she has two beautiful daughters and defining parenting is simply celebrating their children as they wish to be rather than serving a guide to help direct children. I have two beautiful... Oh, I'm not covering it again. In 2014, LGBT enthusiast hailed Angelina Jolie and her now ex-husband Brad Pitt as heroes for treating their five-year-old daughter Shiloh Jolie as a boy after she insisted... They see her as such. According to various leftist sites, including The Advocate, the now-divorced couple reportedly supported their 8-year-old daughter, Shiloh's chose to both wear suits and be referred to as John, as far back as 2008 when Shiloh was 2 years old. Brad Pitt told Oprah that his daughter insisted on being called John. His words were echoed in 2010 when Angelina Jolie took Vanity Fair. Shiloh wants to be a boy, so he had her hair cut. Jesus Christ. Needless to say, Lopez has been taking considerable flack on social media for daring to call out this demonstrably dangerous form of parenting. I'm glad things are coming out into the open so I know who to never F with again. Like Mario Lopez thinking he knows anything and do, going on a prejudice show with an idiot host and criticizing another parent on their child transitioning. Gross. What gives you the rights? And one Twitter user. Mario Lopez is canceled just for appearing on her show, let alone what he actually said. Said another user. Mario Lopez should mind his own business and worry about his own children. Everyone is entitled to their opinion, even wrong ones. But criticizing someone's parenting publicly crosses the line. If a child isn't being abused, observe quietly, said another. Mario Lopez has described himself as a Catholic and even renewed his baptismal promise in Jordan River. You know, here's the deal, folks. If I didn't transition my kid, you criticize the fuck out of it. So why don't you shut your fucking cockhole? Then we get to this heretic. Mario Lopez accused of trans transgressions. I'm reading it because it's super funny because this is our world. Mario Lopez is a world of trouble. He stands accused of hearsay, a charge that in 399 B.C. got you hemlock cocktail. Neat. Not even on the rocks. In 33 B.C., it would get you stoned and another rather notable case, crucified. And in 1200, hearsay was a serious crime to turning people into newts, of which the less, the less said, the better. Today, what it constitutes hearsay is very different than in the past and mainly including reactionary thoughts against the glorious sexual revolution of asking how exactly your ancestors in Lithuania were culpable for slavery in Alabama. But the penalties for hearsay remains harsh. Officials in social ostracizations, loss of livelihood, indentured servitude to Rosie O'Donnell, etc. Lopez, host of Access Hollywood, has yet to learn this ultimate fate, but Newsweek, which still exists, posted the damning the most damning of the charges against him on July 31st. To wit, the accused did with malice aforementioned appear on the Candace Owens Show, a video series of the Prego YouTube channel. The accused recklessly stated that he was blown away that some parents allowed toddlers to decide their own gender, saying it's sort of alarming. The accused said such parents were guilty of narcissism. The accused conflated gender identity with sexual orientation, saying, when you're a kid, you don't know anything about sexuality yet. You're just a kid. 
Whatever punishment eventually fades, Lopez Heritel embrace of biology and his scorn for lefty parents who treat their children as social experience has already incurred the displeasure of the online torch and pitchfork set. After news of the interview broke, Lopez's Wikipedia page was altered to refer to him as a transphobic and a misogynistic American actor and entertainment journalist, according to Newsweek, which really does still exist. The Lopez is so LGBT-friendly as to have presented at some of GLAD's perpetual awards hardly mitigates his transgressions. GLAD CEO Sarah Kate Ellis said Lopez clearly needs a primer on trans issues. A group called PFLAG, the National Organization for Friendly for Friends, Family, and Allies of LGBT People, made a condescending offer to explain modern magical sex thinking to Lopez in a tweet. Newsweeks, which violently against all odds continues to exist, called the tweet edifying. Yes, Lopez stands sore charged of the most heinous of modern heresies. May God or Gia or Rosie have mercy on his soul. Update. The confession is in. Mario Lopez regrets his ignorant and insensitive comment about transgender children. You're going to backtrack that shit. But it's everywhere. Sultry summer soap doesn't believe in binary nature of sexuality. It seems as if our culture couldn't have gotten more confused about sexuality before LGBTQEIEIO, but that notion is being proven wrong with one outrageous equality push after another. Fortunately, ABC summer drama Grand Hotel tries to clear that all up for us in their latest episode, Monday night's episode, Where the Sun Don't Shine, featured several scenes focused on how Gigi, Rosalind Sanchez, was handling her daughter Yolanda, Justin Adorno, coming out as a queer while Gigi is trying to come across as supportive, her daughter is less than pleased. She feels that Gigi just doesn't understand her. This is especially apparent when she gets two LGBT communities mixed up. Gigi, Yolanda, honey, I've been looking all over for you. Are you avoiding me? Yolanda, why would I do that? Could it be the stabbing pain of your rejection? Yolanda, I'm sorry. You caught me off guard, okay? Yolanda, I need time to, to process, you know, but I promise you that it was not a reflection of how I feel. Gigi, really? You're my daughter, Miami, and I love you and accept you completely. I don't have a problem if you're gay, Yolanda. I never said I was gay. I'm queer. Gigi, is, is, isn't that the same thing? Yolanda, no. Queer means I don't believe in binary nature or sexuality. I just like who I like. Gigi, wonderful. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, so is it possible you could someday maybe end up liking a man? Yolanda scoffs. And there it is. That's the only way you'll be okay if I end up with a guy. Gigi, of course not, Yoli. I'm just trying. Yeah, Yolanda, I should have known. <laughs> and walks off. Scene. <laughs> I didn't do that very well. So apparently being bisexual is being into women and men, and being queer is being into both men and women. But just acknowledging they, their meaning in women, yeah, okay. That clearly... Cl- Totally clears things up. Honestly, though, it's kind of outrageous that as a society we've gone from fighting for equal rights for the LGBT community to insisting that anyone who can't keep up with this non-logical and ever-changing gender and sexuality language system is intolerant. No words have ever been written better. Let's say it again. Fighting for equal rights for LGBTQ, E-I-E-I-O... And insisting that anyone who can't keep up with this non-logical and ever-changing gender and sexuality language system is intolerant. Not even tolerance appears to be enough anymore, as celebration is now required. 
and the right celebration is an effort to show she cares about Yolanda. Gigi throws a coming out party for her. Yolanda is still unhappy, though, because apparently this is too stereotypical. It is ever possible to win with liberal ideology? And the answer is no. So her girlfriend tries to give her perspective while throwing a punch at the Christian community. Yolanda, I need a drink. Marissa, hey, Yolanda, why don't you warn me about this? Marissa, your mom swore me to secrecy, and I think I think it's sweet. Yolanda, sweet? It looks like the set of RuPaul's Drag Race here. So stereotypical. Marissa, at least she's trying. When I came out to my parents, all I got was a copy of the New Testament. So apparently every time someone comes out, it's mandatory to throw a non-stereotypical coming out party. Leave your Christian theology at the door. Between the increasing standards of acceptance demanded by the LGBTQ community and the ever-growing terminology that seems just to be several synonyms, it might just start needing to carry around a notebook for all my potential interactions with liberals. We'll call it a Guide to Political Correctness 2019 edition. It'll be probably be out of date by tomorrow. And that's true. Yeah. Totally true. Totally true. You can't even keep up with this. You can't keep up with this. It's just ever-changing. And when they're not doing that and starting fucking social justice high schools, there's this story. Liberals politicize video games to push abortion. Conservatives have learned the hard way that liberals use culture to change people's politics. Now the left is talking about how to change minds with hidden messages in video games. The latest episode of the Guardian Tech News podcast, Chips with Everything, focused on how games can be used to reshape people's politically. Reshape people politically, sorry. Host Jordan Erica Weber talked to feminist tech writer Laura Hudson and game developer Mary Flanagan of Tilt Factor. The late July episode discussed how it might be effective to insert pro-abortion messages into popular titles and thus be shifting attitudes, mindsets, and possible, possibly behaviors without players knowing. Hudson described the game Fantastic Fetus as a story which at the beginning involves a character who actually wishes to go through their full pregnancy. As a politically correct bonus, the very beginning of the game lets players decide if they wish to be pregnant as a woman or bearded trans male. Once again, you can't have a fucking baby if you're a male. Biology. Look it up. Through the progress of the game, series of dream sequences as their player goes throughout the pregnancy, the character ideal, idealizes how their baby will look with humorous and cartoonish cute qualities. However, regardless of those choices and how well the player does, there's a whiplash of reality at the end when the baby is born with a fatal fetal abnormality such as hydrocephaly. I probably said that wrong. I think when you look at what tends to change people's hearts around politics, it's not usually because somebody made a really good argument, you know. As much as I love to believe in the pure power debate to change minds, I don't have to think that's the case. I think a lot of what changes people's hearts, particularly around division, divisive issues, is knowing someone or meeting someone who is personally affected by it. The host asked Flanagan about her work at Dartmouth College. Flanagan explains the premise of her company is the question, can we make a must more just and equitable world with games? 
What we try to do, Flanagan explains, is put people in situations where they're open and can explore a world or they can play a game that is like a trivia game. The twist, however, is that the game actually underneath the hood is shifting attitudes, mindsets, and possibility behaviors. In short, the company tries to make games with mainstream appeal that covertly change people's attitudes, suggests that rather than creating tiny games for niche audience that are already liberal, it might be more effective to insert pro-abortion messages in popular titles played by apolitical gamers. The host compares the approach of the developers who use very direct storytelling about abortion to tilt-factor approach. Mary says that she researched... Mary says the research that have carried out over the years have shown that if you want to change opinions, you're better off hiding the social issue in the game about something else rather than make, taking it that in-your-face approach. We have found that if we hit a project head-on, if we say this game is about bias, it's actually the least effective thing we can do. The host comment, commented that the tactic is subtle and the players going in don't know what the actual point or purpose of the game is. There you go. Brainwashing video games. America. Who's the fascist now? Their work is so serious now, and the brainwashing so heavy. Here's an article title. Nice toes, bro. Young men invade nail salons. A man petty becomes a manly petty as more guys get their feet in summer sandal shape. Women endure longer waits. A little weird at first. I don't want to insult any viewers. I will go to my wife's beautician for a haircut and a beard trim because she's really good at it. She does a great beard trim. And I went that way because going to men's shit, you never knew what your trim was going to end up like. I could tell them to take a little bit out of here and they take a chunk out or they won't even touch it. And you got to figure they work on women's hair and work hours trimming shit, make it look whatever the fuck the woman wants. So it was a worthy endeavor. But I'm not getting a fucking Manny Petty. No! Men are supposed to have yellow hook nails that are sharp and cut their women in the bed. Gigi bitches about my pinky toe all the time. I cut it. It's like a fucking razor blade. It's like a fucking rooster. It's supposed to be that way. <clears throat> Moving on. CNN. Prince Harry says he plans to have two children at the most as revealed his increasing concern for the future of the earth. You're a douche nozzle. Somebody says, I wonder how much energy it takes to heat 828,821 square feet of Buckingham Palace. Maybe you need to work on that, Pally. I'm watching The Crown and Victoria and because we have a story in here real quick, I'm just going to blow, I'm going to go off about a show we watched. But, um, and the other one's Spanish Princess because, I don't know, I'm into it. But even in the crown, they went on a fucking global warming bullshit about a fog storm from 52 to 50, it was in 1952, I think, where a bunch of people died. Like 3,000 people died from accidents and all that kind of shit. And now scientists say it was more like 12,000. And it can happen again. Anko Anxiety, Vogue advises parents on kids with climate change nightmares. Oh, isn't that nice? Vogue magazine publishes a piece over the weekend detailing just how hard it can be for children to live in a world doomed by global warming. Talking about eco-anxiety, the article claimed that some children are dealing with debilitating fears of world-ending climate change. 
Well, maybe that's because their fucking parents are brainwashing them. Why would you do that? Or their classes. Vogue tried to offer tips for parents trying to dispel such fears, but we think a much clearer solution would be for dingbat parents to stop convulsing about the world ending in 12 years or what we are all doomed because of greenhouse gases. Clearly, it's traumatizing children now. Seeing little Johnny screaming in his sleep about climbing thermometer reading is definitely a sign of these whacked out of times we've ever seen any. Vogue claims studies show that 45% of children experience depression after a natural disaster. Eco-anxiety in children is a real thing and it's relevant now more than ever. Type of worrying or fear focusing on environmental destruction. And for those kids whose climate change fear is at a level serious enough to interfere with their lives, a loving parent must step in and give them healthy options, like teaching them recycling. I'm not reading anymore. Your kid won't have this if you won't will stop being a douche. Why does your kid even know the earth is dying in 12 years? Why would you tell them that? I know, because you're a fucking fascist. If I brainwash little Jane and Johnny, then they'll go brainwash their friends. And if you're going, your kid's going to a school where they're brainwashing them, change schools! To our crazy crime. 79-year-old woman sentenced to 10 days in jail for feeding stray cats because of an ordinance. It's fucking horrible. Me and the wife have gone to jail about 400 times. I feel feed 20 little motherfuckers every day. Costs about $100 a month. Katy Perry, Dark Horse, copied Christian rap song. Oh, that's not going to get her any cred. A jury on Monday found that Katy Perry's 2013 hit, Dark Horse, improperly copied a 2009 Christian rap song in a unanimous decision that represented a fair takedown a rare takedown, a pop superstar and elite producer by relatively unknown artists. The verdict by a nine-member federal jury in Los Angeles courtroom came five years after Marcus Gray and two co-authors first sued in 2014, alleging Dark Horse stole from Joyful Noise, a song Gray released under the stage name Flame. The case now goes to penalty phase, where the jury will decide how much Perry and other defendants owe for copyright infringements. Questions from the jury during their two full days of deliberation had suggested that they might find only some of the defendants liable for copy infringement. The case focused on the notes and beat of the song, not its lyrics or recording, and the question suggests that Perry might be off the hook. But in a decision that left many in the courtroom surprised, jurors found all six songwriters and all four corporations that released and distributed the song were liable, including Perry and Sarah Hudson, who wrote only the song's word, and Juicy J, who only wrote the rap he provided for the song. Perry was not present when the verdict was read. Other defendants found liable were Capitol Records, Dr. Luke, Max Martin, and Circuit, C-I-R-K-U-T. It came up with the song's beat. Gray's attorney argued that the beat and instrumental line featured through the nearly half a Dark Horse are substantially similar to those of Joyful Nose, Noise and funnily, funnily, was the defense trying to say it's like somebody saying that Mary had a little lamb. It's a, it's just a universal song, and they lost. In awesome news, Procter and Gamble recently released its quarterly earning report, and things were mostly positive. Quarterly review was up, and the stock performed well above Wall Street estimates. Share prices rose to new highs, and the company appears to be performing very strong. But not all the company. Reuters top news. P&G posts strong sales, takes $8 billion Gillette write-down. $8 billion. 
So while the rest of the company is doing gangbuster, the only sector seeing a massive loss was Gillette Division. The report mentioned a num- number of factors leading to losses, such as foreign monetary rates and an overall slump in the grooming market. <coughs> Others sense another influence. Sharon, $8 billion loss. What else did they expect? They sided with SJW to be anti-men when a majority of their customer base is men. Men not only have hair to shave, but self-respect to uphold. There are a lot of competitors in the market. We just chose someone that doesn't push politics on us. Another tweeter, speaking of get woke, go broke, I'm actually happy Gillette went woke. I found out that the generic version of their Mach 3 is a third of the cost and lasts three times as long. Their wokeness saved me money. That will never hit the airwaves on CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, none of them motherfuckers. Because guess what? It happens all the time. And if they actually admit the conservative bans on shit worked, well, that would just ruin the whole thing, man. They're not going to go out and cover anything conservative. They're just not. Which brings us to our last little segment. I'll just read headlines. Outlander, false feminism? Three Atlantic writers discuss Star's buzzy new fantasy show. Outlander, Outlander is back, and as a feminist, I'm conflicted. So, me and the wife decided to pick up just any series. Season 1 and Season 2, halfway through, was really good. Halfway through 3, really good. It's a time travel show. I'm going to play a soundbite. <clears throat> but the concept is, it's the Gaelic Stones, and they're, you could transport through it. So, in this Doctor Who slash Quantum Leap slash Matrix concept show, this woman, in her bath, bath her fucking undergarment, her sheath, goes through the stones, ends up 200 years earlier, so it's six, 1960, or 1946, and she ends up going back to 1746, when she commences to fuck everything up, but she falls in love with a man, goes back to normal day because of the, um, the fight that the Jacobites, this is all true, this, this author is a woman's author, I'm sure the covers have a dude and a woman in 18th century shit, and they're hugging each other, it's very loving, I mean, it's a woman's book. Love, yada, yada. But it's history-based. <clears throat> and they literally going to lose this big battle where everybody fucking croaks. He sends her back because she's pregnant. She goes back to modern day. and I hate Spoiler alert, I guess. And in the modern day, she, her current husband falls fucking apart. It, it's a really good show. And then she goes back after her child's old enough. And then the child comes forward. And now they're basically settlers in pre-Civil War. And I'm assuming Season 4 will go into this... The, not Civil War, but the Revolutionary War. And I'm sure we're going to go into the Revolutionary War um, pretty soon because that's where we're heading in it. Within it is the fact that they just can't stop making it a feminist show. And this Claire, can't, she's the woman that goes back. She has to be the head person. They took an old Gaelic song that was about a man and they took the words and changed the whole fucking thing to be feminine. Within it, she can't back down that she's a woman and she's from the 19th century and or the 20th century and she's not going to take shit for men. And 
Then her daughter comes, and she's just a fucking hell of a bitch. And I think what they're saying, false feminism, is because in the show, because of her insistence of not bow, you know, bending the knee to the current times, which I'm not saying is right, you know, where women were just, you know, <clears throat> backseat drivers. They were not allowed to have careers. Yada, yada, yada. That's not what I'm saying. Her insistence on not knowing her place or shutting her fucking mouth makes this Jamie guy's life fucking horrible. Then the daughter comes and fucks everything up. But when I went to research the articles for it, what ended up being is that they just were pissed off that he was raped. So because you gotta have the gay shit. So we had we had gay <clears throat> a gay British officer butt raping him. <clears throat> and he just submits because he's beaten down. And then a gay British officer who's in love with him. And then you have the, the daughter get raped. And <clears throat> it's just all these subjects that are 19th century, not saying they didn't happen. Women didn't like the way they're presented. It wasn't PC enough. And the fact that Every time she goes a la feminist, feminazi in the show, everything goes to shit. Because she won't listen to any men. Simple scene. They're in the woods. They're moving. He tells her not to go anywhere. The donkey will come back. She goes anywhere. She fucking almost dies. Gets lost. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. You're in the fucking woods. You don't separate. There's only two of you. But for women and feminists, oh, why would you do that? Why would you write it so that she'd be in trouble? Women don't get lost. Men do. And I was just shocked because this is clearly an over-the-top feminist show. I thought they'd be happy. But they clearly found you can never be, you know, it goes back to that saying, you can't be woke enough. And in her zeal to be woke, everything goes to shit. So here's a soundbite, and we're going to go straight into our lighter fare. Two Ranger Up stuff. So you're going to hear a soundbite of Outlander, and then you're going to hear a Ranger Up comedy piece. Something happened to me. I was on my honeymoon in 1945. I distinctly heard the barman refer to us as Sassamax. I hope you didn't take offence. It only means Englishman, or at worst, Outlander. A word to the wise, be careful after dark. The world just spun out of control. Claire? I know it doesn't make any sense. But I seem to have fallen through time. You may be inspired. Let it go! You're right. You need not be scared of me, nor anyone else here. The Highlands are no place for a woman to be alone. You do well to remember that, Frank. You're not Frank. Clear. Clear. Where are you? I believe that you have secrets, Claire. As long as I'm with you, I hold myself bound to your word. Let 
Try not to get flogged or stabbed today. Now, no promises, Sassinac. You know it's going to be fine, right? No matter what happens, it's going to be fine. We're going to get through this. Good morning. Sorry I'm late. I've been dealing with a monstrous chlamydia outbreak on base. Um, I don't know any other way to say this, so I'm just going to get right to the point. Gail is a basic dependent. Doctor, there's got to be some mistake. I'm afraid not. Your symptoms are in line with other something for basic appendicitis. You joke about outranking other wives. You have a bumper sticker that says, I put the ooh in ooh-ah. And you started a Facebook group entitled Household Sixes. Doctor, look, it's my fault that she's a basic dependa. One time she stayed over and I lent her a pair of Ranger panties Next thing you know, it's out of control. She's posing in my uniforms on Insta. That's very brave of you, Ted. I, I respect your courage, but I think this has been going on for a long time. Gail, when do you think you first started these behaviors of dependicitis? Well, when I joined the Army, I mean, when we... When I married Ted, I kind of got involved with the ladies at the FRG. And then, thing, I was making Christmas wreaths of Ted's old ACUs. So you probably contracted your initial contact of appendicitis from those FRG girls. Yeah. Found yourself buying coach, Michael Kors purses at the base exchange. Yeah. Having sex toy party with Master Sergeant Miller's wife. Yeah. So. I can't believe we ignored the signs. The camo skirts. The incessant crafting. You wrote, you're welcome for my service as a tip at Applebee's. And it's getting worse. Here's a picture from you at a party two years ago wearing Ted's t-shirt, posing as a ranger instructor. And you posted, hashtag, ranger spouses lead the way. That's some ratcheted basic shit, Gail. Yeah. But, but at least you were having a good time. Two months ago, you tweeted, the hardest job in the military is an army wife's. Hashtag warrior. Where did you come up with that? And then this morning, I was going through her Instagram, Ted, and she posted a photo of her and her new Molan Lave tattoo. I don't mean to be so sensitive. We lost a lot of good men in those hot gates. You've got to take this seriously. If not treated properly, this could escalate into a full-blown appendicitis attack at the main gate because the gate guard didn't salute your husband's sticker. Total basic behavior. Doctor, I, I hate to ask here, but could I contract this level of basicness? Ted! Look, I have a sheepdog reputation to uphold. Gail, his concerns are valid. But you should be fine, as long as you use protection. If you hear that she's planning a knitting event to, to make baby booties or that she's working on her new pyramid scheme to sell essential oils to other wives, find something to keep yourself busy. Uh, go to the range, 
go to the gym, work on ice sculptures, buy a couple of Ranger Up t-shirts, anything to keep you from getting involved in that basic shit. Doctor, is there any chance of a recovery? Will I ever be a cold spouse? I'm afraid not. With proper treatment, we can reduce your level of dependicitis. But let's face it, Gail's never going to be a cool spouse, Ted. But if you work at it, you can avoid full-blown episodes of using your husband's rank to get a work detail for the FRG garden party, or meeting him at the airplane after returning from a deployment with a sign that says, prepare for debriefing, or telling your friends, I've done two tours in Vietnam. Well, it's harder than QA, right? Um, I'm gonna give you guys a few minutes. Thank you, Doctor. What time's my tea time? I know this has to be hard, but you're stronger than this. And I don't care what any doctor out there says, you're gonna beat this and you're gonna be the old you again. And I am behind you 100% of the way, no matter what. Who are? I want a divorce. Fuck you, Gail. Ted! Ted! You suck. Kennedy here. I'm Special Forces Sniper, Ranger, Green Beret, professional fighter, and uh, black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm walking into my, my buddy's gym, Paulo Brandao. It's a Hoyla Gracie, Gracie Umaida. This is a high-level competition class. And today, I am not going to be a black belt. I am going to be a white belt. So this is what I'm going to be rocking. I'm going to not let anybody know that I am, in fact, Tim Kennedy. Rather, I am Terry Bull. To make this prank work, we have to not let anyone realize that it is in fact me, Tim Kennedy. So we hired a Hollywood production company with a Hollywood makeup artist, and this transformation is going to be so comprehensive and complete, nobody is going to have a clue it is in fact me. This is my buddy Terry from out of town. Terry. Yeah. Right. How are you? Good. I want to do jujitsu class. Nope. Terry. Terry. T E R R Y. From out of town. Yep. All right. I can't believe that's Tim. I mean, I wouldn't recognize him on the street. It's crazy. Terry. Damn, sorry, Terry. We Terry? Hollywood, right? 
It's like special effects for the face. This is amazing. I feel like a total different person. Nobody knows. I can't wait for them to find out it's really Tim. It's gonna be so funny. It's gonna be so amazing. This is working famously. Nobody understands how a white belt can be doing so well. I'm gonna kick it up a notch. Tim. Terry. It's Terry. Oh, fuck Terry. That guy's an asshole. All right, Tim. That's enough, Dan. You made your point, Tim. Right now, this guy's going, how is this white belt doing this to me? I can't wait till they see that it's Tim. It's going to be amazing. What's this fucking guy's problem? He definitely smothered me at one point. I'm sure that's illegal. And my ribs are definitely broken. I've got an announcement to make. My friend Terry from out of town is really Tim Kennedy. Ha-ha! Yeah, so that was so much fun. I think everybody totally bought it. They're like, this is Terry. Bull. That's who that is. I almost couldn't believe it. I and I knew about it. I mean, I felt as if I, I just morphed into this other person, you know? And like, it was it was beautiful. I think everyone had fun, too. Yeah. It was a blast. Everybody had such a great time. I mean, everyone had a lot of fun. He'll be okay. Shake it off. Now, in there, you hear the most annoying part of the show, Sussanich, which means Outlander. And I actually tweeted to it because, like I said, it's not, sorry, I blew my nose. That's kind of rude. I understand, you know, it's a woman's show, but it's good. It's entertaining. I'm not saying it wasn't entertaining. But he says that fucking phrase every two seconds. And I remember tweeting going, hey, listen. I've been married 33 years, or almost 33 years. I don't, I don't fucking say my wife's name over and over or, or her nickname in a conversation. That's nothing we do. And every sentence was such an ex, such an ex, such an ex, such an ex. Secondly, as I ranted earlier about, out of the British officers, 20% are gay. So this was a glad centric because it is, you know, it is a star's production. You can get it on, um, Amazon, and I do believe Netflix has the first seasons. But you got to get the Stars app to watch the rest of it. And they social media it. Because I highly doubt if today, modern times, 3.5% of the American public is gay, 0.7% is transgender. 
that in the British islands, 20% of men were gay. But they had to do it. We don't have lesbianism, but we have a fuck ton of gayness. Including scenes of butt-fucking in the whole nine yards. So Stars is going to get an A rating from freaking Glad from gang it the fuck up. They're, they're just going to. It's it's unbelievable. During uh, our other lighter fan, we got a quick This is America and we'll get out of here. And I still didn't make it two and a half hours. I tried. I talked less. I took music out. Except for once. I, I can't do it. The Democrats decided. Democrats cross country are watching the second Democratic primary debate in Detroit. Have a watch party tonight. Share a photo in the comments below and let us know what you're watching from. The only ones I could find on this were a picture of Trump, Pocahontas in a teepee, a giant rat on a subway in Baltimore from the border with the AOC crying in the parking lot and Bernie's three houses and every trash and shit pile of every city in California. That's the responses they got. But more importantly, and the Republicans do this too, why would you send a tweet, Democrats across the country are watching the second Democratic primary debate? I understand you can only vote in your primary. But do you notice that both parties don't even try anymore? They don't even, just for a second, try to reach to the other side. They don't. And that's pretty fucking bad. To our This Is America, I have an article and I have a soundbite because that's what it's supposed to be, our last soundbite of the day. That's the worst thing I heard. The tweet I saw was Jay Yates, Hong Kong protest embrace American flag and fight for freedom. And he linked to the story, the left-wing power play of banning American Symbols from the Betsy Ross flag to Thomas Jefferson Monument, self-anointed minders are erecting a moral hierarchy that confronts their fellow elites. Those pictures, every protest in Hong Kong, they had an American flag. And the article goes like this. When Michael Eric Dyson was asked on MSDNC why Nike canceled the release of a pair of Independence Day themed sneakers because the design featured the Betsy Ross flag, he answered with a perfect moral certainty. Because symbols matter. Why don't we wear a swastika for the July 4th? Presidential candidates agreed the flag popularly remembered as the first in the United States was also flown by slave owners and therefore was disqualified from display. Beto O'Rourke, I think it's really important to take into account the impressions the kind of symbols would have for many of our fellow Americans. Castro, there are a lot of things in our history that are still very painful. The Confederate flag still flies in some places. Let's talk about the Confederate flag. When it came down from the South Carolina State House in 2015 following the Dillon Roof murders, it felt like a good moment, one of those rare episodes of national unity where the majority would get together and articulate shared values. The Confederate flag stood for treason and slavery. It could no longer occupy a public's place of honor. It was a Republican governor, Nikki Haley, who made that call, and conservatives followed her lead. But it was never going to stop with just the Confederates. Nike canceled the shoe because Colin Kaepernick, an ostensibly marginalized figure, and warned them that the Betsy Ross flag symbolized oppression. Prior to Kaepernick intervention, the flag symbolized nothing but America. But Kaepernick and allied activists argued that the flag is sometimes used by the Klan. Well, so is the Christian cross, and so is the current American flag. The 
Defamation League itself noted that the Betsy Ross flag is not a thing in the white supremacist movement. In 2013, enormous Betsy Ross flags hung prominently over the U.S. Capitol, framing President Obama as he delivered his second inaugural address. No one felt pain. No one felt oppression. No one saw swastikas. This new anti-flag campaign does not seek to protect people from pain. Banning Betsy Ross provides no help to those who need it. It does nothing to address the real problems of yawning racial disparities in wealth and education. Instead, it seeks something just as ancient, just as human, the exercise of power. Rather than redress a pre-existing wrong, it invents a new wrong for the sole purpose of demanding that it be redressed. All the more power to the demanders. The Kaepernick and Dysons of the world acquire even more influence and authority. Who else could invent our wrongs for us? How else would millions of cosmopolitan secularists exercise their made-up demons and flagellate themselves for their unearned privilege without sacrificing any of it? Symbolically, of course, discovering the hateful nature of a long-loved symbol fulfills a core function of our era's leftist politics, erecting a moral hierarchy that gives the pious at the top of the satisfaction of scourging the heretics at the bottom. Actual majority opinion doesn't matter, nor even does black opinion, which is not and has never regarded the flag as offensive. All that is needed is the ritual invocation of an oppressor and a victim. A tiny group of activists will cobble together some pretextual arguments that such oppression is active, and then remarkably, supposedly patriotic and reasonable progressives like O'Rourke and Castro will accord this pretext total moral authority. After all, what else could they say? In 2019, what tool does a progressive have to allow him to disagree with a voice claiming oppression? Symbols ultimately mean whatever we decide they mean. And that question of meaning will be answered by whoever has the moral authority to do the deciding. Today, the America's left central moral principle is the defense of victims from oppression. This creates an arbitrage opportunity and a minimal plausible claim that a symbol means oppression will be believed because the moral penalties of disbelief are too high and the social constructed nature of symbols provide no solid ground for a counter argument. Anyone looking for social power will exploit this opportunity mercilessly. We were told that they were solid neutral principles behind the pulling down of the Confederate symbols. How could our country venerate those who fought against it? What could justify the pain felt by black Americans gazing on a flag that had been brought into being for the purpose of violently defending slavery? Those were and are good principles. But the pulling down of symbols wasn't just about universal principles. It was also about power. That means there is nothing that can be can contain it. The next thing it will eat will be American founding itself. Jefferson, Washington, the symbols on our money and buildings, our monuments, our flags, our anthem, the names of our cities, our declaration of independence. Minimally plausible arguments can be made that these things are tainted by slavery. There will be some to sound like the one CNN political analyst Angela Rye offered when she said George Washington was a slave owner and we need to call slave owners out for who they are. He wasn't protecting my freedom. My ancestors weren't deemed human being to him. I don't care if it's George Washington's statue or Thomas Jefferson's statue or a Lee statue. They all need to come down. This line will soon become the mainstream position on the left. 
Those attracted to it have everything to gain by wielding it. Those who fear it have no legitimacy and no tools to resist it. Neutral principles will be offered for the leveling. Moderates and few conservatives will go along. It will come in waves. Jefferson will go down, go before Washington because Jefferson was the worst slave owner. Wildly considered to have fathered children with Sally Hemings, a slave who could not consent. Conservatives will hope it stops there, but really the moral stain of owning a human being is bad enough, and Washington will soon follow. The distinctions will crumble and will all get thrown into the same pot for the same meal for the same people, the coterie of activists who now hold the whip hand over our social imagination, the ones with the moral authority to decide. It's already starting. This week, the City Council of Charlottesville, the home of the University of Virginia in Monticello, voted unanimously to abolish their official recognition of Thomas and Jefferson's birthday as a holiday. Even if you believe the Jefferson treatment of slaves has qualified him from celebration, remember that the, this principle will never stay confined to him. Racial subjugation was endemic during the founding. In other ways, it's touching everything. Either we retain the ability to venerate the symbols and achievement of this period while remaining conscious of their failures, or else the whole thing will be placed on the ash heap. Some ardently wish for the latter. In an article originally titled, Let's Blow Up Mount Rushmore, before it was hastily retitled to merely get rid of it, Vice Editor Wilbert Cooper put it succinctly, pulling the historical figures of the past off the great mountaintop back down to earth where they shat, pissed, spit, pissed, fucked, raped, murdered, died, and rotted seem like an important business for the country, he said. Monuments built by the state are not history, he continued. They are manifestations of power. They don't tell you who, what, why, or how something happened. Instead, they just inform you who's in control. Here are the costs of ceding control to people who think the American flag is racist symbol and every monument to Washington should be dynamited into oblivion. We will no longer have a society. The wreckers have no replacement national narrative except one built on shame. It will never work. The only thing keeping our society together is the perception that we have things in common, that we tell the same stories, venerate the same people, hold the same ideals, remember the same history. It's not a neat tale. Our American project is full of disaster and disappointment. But it has held together because it's a story based on national pride. The only glue that precedes The precedent proves worthy of the job. A nation held together by shame is a science experiment. The Kaepernicks and Dysons will tell you these stories are lies that make social justice impossible. Don't believe it for a second. A self-confident national narrative is precisely what makes social justice possible. Our civil rights icons were proud to wave the flag and spoke of the founders with reverence. They saw their movement as making good the original promise of the American founding a promise that had been incompletely realized. What was good about America, embodied in our glorious founding, was sufficient to fix what was rotting about America, because the problem was that America was failing to live up to, to its own example. When the architect of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, Martin Luther King Jr. said at the Lincoln Memorial, they were signing a promissory note. The, the activists claim that exactly what they're trying to avoid, only by reckoning with our country's painful racial history can we ever truly heal, heal, they say, but their reckoning is like the rapture, forever just out of reach. They would never acknowledge it had been achieved, because that would cede the power to punish. Acknowledging progress would mean things are getting better, but their power comes from telling their audience, largely wealthy white liberals, that things are just as bad as ever. They say they're trying to save America from conflict, but they're 
their statements holds in the words of Tanishi Coates that racism is a pervasive force both native and essential in the body of America and white supremacy a force so fundamental to America that it's difficult to imagine the country without it. The result of this thinking is not a reckoning but a racial forever war. Waving the Betsy Ross flag is a perfect act of resistance to the forever war. It should be waved in affirmation of our ability to tell stories about ourselves that inspire and unify, that our symbols can stand for good without erasing the bad. If we conservatives can't conserve that possibility, then we aren't worthy of the name. That was by Nicholas Phillips. It's fancy words for what I've said many times on the show. If they admit we move progress, they can't scare their audience into voting. And he misses a key part of the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag ringed, ringed the state house in South Carolina. When I was there, it was taken down to a pre-agreed spot on the state grounds, one flag with the NAACP. Once it moved, the ceremony was done. One week later, the NAACP started protesting it being there. That brought us to Nikki Haley. It's never enough. And by no means interpret that I'm defending the, you know, the freaking <laughs> fucking Confederate flag. What I'm saying is it never ends. He's spot on. This is a forever war. These same people will get on the TV and tell you how horrible America is, their life isn't horrible. They perceive racism because they never really felt racism. We elected a black president. It threw a gigantic fucking stick in their cogs. It fucked up everything they talked about. And as I've said on the show a million times, that's when we got here. That's when we went into overdrive of social justice stupidity because they had to reinstate the fear, the power they hold over people. And he hits the simple concept they want. What I said in my op-ed a couple podcasts ago. They hate this country. They want a country that is divided. If they break everybody into little groups, then you start hating on other groups they win. That's why Obama's whole shtick was separate and conquer. His website did not include you, a white woman. It did not include you, a white male. It did not include vets, policemen. It was gay, lesbian, trans, black, oriental, Hispanic. Separate and conquer. If you fear others, hate on others, and covet what others have, they will win. And with the race issues, they've been doing it forever. It's not what Martin Luther King did when there was real need for fixing an America from Democrat Party Jim Crow laws in the South when Dixiecrats ruled. They didn't hate this country. They wanted to fix the country. But the country's been fixed. It's been fixed. 
for some time. But if they admit that, they don't have the power. So we take all our symbols, throw them in the trash heap. Everybody who was ever somebody in your books, they you don't learn that shit. You learn about a fucking gay guy who had a cart in California, as we talked about a couple podcasts ago. That's what we train our kids on. Which brings us to our last soundbite. A woman was convicted of illegally voting. And NBC News found that to be vile. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing living up. This is America in 2019. She saw it as a civic duty, Crystal Mason, recalling the 2016 election and the vote that would change her life. I remember what my mom told me the night before, and that was, Crystal, this is the last day, don't forget to go vote. But at the polling place, she learned her name was not on the rolls and was told to fill out a provisional ballot. He said, if you're at the right location, it'll count. And if you're not, it won't. But that sealed provisional ballot sealed her fate, landing her behind bars for illegal voting. In Texas, felons can vote after completing their sentence, parole, and probation. But when she voted, Mason was still on supervised release. She was convicted of illegal voting and sentenced to five years in state prison, plus 10 additional months on her federal sentence. Would you have ever cast that ballot knowing it was illegal? I didn't get out and get a a decent job, go to school, graduate from school to cast a ballot to leave my kids, my family again. A felon? who comes in and votes when they're not legally allowed to vote, that's not really a prosecution you see very often. Her supporters point to Iowa, where a woman was convicted of voting twice in the 2016 election and was sentenced to two years probation and a $750 fine. That's how far the left will go. Illegally voting, your civic duty. It's not your civic duty if you don't live here. Applying the Constitution to illegal immigrants. The Bill of Rights. They don't have rights. They're not citizens. We say it all the time as conservatives or people that are in the middle of this clusterfuck. We have people living on our streets. Every California town is a fucking shithole of trash, feces, and rats. We don't take care of them. We are a nation of immigrants, but we're also a nation that should take care of our own. And we don't, because the left doesn't want you. They don't want poor white people living in fucking trailers. They're, they've gone beyond black. They've gone beyond, beyond gay. They just want trannies and fucking illegal aliens. Those are the people they want. Because if they can make this country unstable, they win. So that being on a news network, 
That's unsatisfactory. We don't have enough Americans voting. When a third of the country, or last time I said it was like 40% of the able-to-vote Americans vote every year, some of them multiple times for Democrats, illegal voting is a problem. And anybody who can objectively look at California, where Hillary got her 3 million votes over Trump, because that was the separation. And it's a state that hands out driver's license. How many of those votes are illegal? We just had cases of 14,000, 15,000 on the East Coast. Illegal votes. Another district, people that are in a graveyard voted. That should be something all Americans go, no, 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 that's not acceptable. But it's no longer about America. It's about America they want, what the media want. A socialistic open border hellhole where people that have lived here for generations but happen to be the wrong skin color are punished for transgressions by people that they are not even related to. I mean, this whole slave reparations. How many descendants of slaves are there? How many descendants of slave owners are there? But you're going to punish anybody who's not black? That's your concept. The grievous state of progressive politics and the mainstream media is a forever war, like the author said. We could do everything that they claim needs to be done. They'll just find more stuff. That's what they'll do. Because it never ends for them. Hating America, hating fellow Americans... It's forever for them. It's what they are. And that wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends, send comments or suggestions to foppodcast at gmail.com, F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Remember to check out the Facebook page at Fop Podcast and Twitter page at Fop. Tony Reed. So we're going to do the next podcast. Uh, let's shoot for the 7th of August, which, by the way, for geeks like me, is also ESPN Ocho Day. If you haven't looked yet, go to your ESPN 2 for August 7th, and you will see a shit ton of weird ass shit, just like the movie Dodgeball. I saw pizza aerobatics, uh, go-kart races, lawnmower races, shit I never even heard of. It's going to be a whole day starting at like 4 in the morning until like 11 o'clock at night of other sports. And they're going to call it ESPN Ocho. I guess this is the second time they've done it. I missed it. I'm very depressed about that because it's some good shit. Till then, stay cool. Remember to disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah-yeahs. And tune back in next Wednesday.
for another exciting episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count.